my biggest fear ever is sitting down to do one of these, and it just doesn't work. But it seems like we're good. Okay, good. Because can you imagine doing like a three-hour podcast, and then you get back, and it's just all gone, at least one angle of it. Especially if you like got into some really amazing topics, and it was yeah. like one of a kind. Yeah. <laughs> and you were excited about it. That's what happened with the Human podcast. That's so disappointing. It was so disappointing, but it's, it's a learning experience. Like This is a one-of-a-kind setup. I don't know anybody who's podcasting like this. But I know that this is critical, like the, the fucking microphone. And what about the glasses? Those are critical. The glasses are critical now, too. We got the stands, a universal stand I can find anywhere. It's, it's an invention that I could take credit for, I think. Absolutely. Me and Jared, right before this, we're trying to golf. So unfortunately, I flew my clubs all the way out here, and it's nothing but rain today. Yeah. If we want to golf in a lake, today would have been a good day. I'm always down to golf in the lake. <laughs> Tomorrow. Yeah. Well, yeah, back to like this, it's like I feel like... Like, you've done interviews before where you have, like, the wireless mic on, right? Yeah. It feels more like an interview, right? Right. With these, it's like more like a podcast. Even though it's the same thing, it's like a different type of style. This is more, this feels more right, for sure. Right. Well, we were just talking, and I was telling you how, like, the interview we did on this couch, when uh, Nalo is, like, a little smaller and kept interrupting, is at 50,000 views. So, like, in this podcast, I don't really want to get, like, everybody knows your story at this time, you know? You really started getting known when you got the second quickest growing store, second to Kylie Jenner. Does that ever get old for you? Like people saying that? Because it's been like three years now. Yeah, because it, I mean, it really doesn't mean anything. Right. It's just like I really got lucky on an ad campaign that scaled like crazy and I stuck to it. On the drive home to Florida, right? Yeah. Or was it, was, it to California? No, from California to Florida. Yeah, when we were moving from California to Florida... It's when I started outsourcing the media buying mm-hmm. and the support and it allowed my, you know, the driving allowed my brain to like get more free and do less. So I had more creative energy Yeah, and we just started testing things. And uh, yeah, during that drive, it scaled from like 2K a day to like 50K in like five days. We talked about it last time how weird it is that my first successful drop um, Shopify store was on the drive back from California to St. Louis Yeah, and yours is similar. So what have you been up to? The Because I know that right now you're getting, you have at work in your ass off in Zendrop. Yep. Yeah, really, um, as of lately, it's been Zendrop um, and taking care of my dogs and golfing. Yeah. That's my life. And you golf every single day. I try to, yeah, as long as it's not raining. Um, yeah. You know, I live in this neighborhood because it's, it's easy to go play golf. And I, th- I think it's really, at least for me, it's important to have a hobby. Or else I don't know what to do with myself. Or else I'll get into a bad habit or I'll like, you know, it's good. People are all about like work, work, work all the Mm -hmm. time. But I think there's other things that you need to have in your life to balance. And for me, golf is one of those things that like no matter how much I play it, like I'm going to keep getting better at it my whole life. So I, you know, sticking with it. And do you ever wear like an Apple watch when you golf? I don't. But I have looked up how many calories. Oh I my gosh, it's so good for you. I, I did one where I was 18 with the riding cart. It was like 1,200 calories. Yeah, and I'll, I'll sometimes play two rounds a day. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes 27 holes. So I'm definitely burning some calories. What's the most holes you've ever played in a day? 54. 54? <laughs> that's three games? Yeah. Three? Was that just all day, just golf? We were on a trip uh, to Laurel Valley, which is like this, it was Arnold Palmer's uh, home country club. Mm-hmm. And we played early in the morning, we played in the afternoon, and then we played like twilight around. Is that Florida or California? No, that's uh, Pennsylvania. Oh, really? Yeah. I was thinking like Laurel Canyon. No, Laurel that. Valley. Yeah. Exclusive little club. I got invited there with a couple friends and, 
Yeah, 54 holes. A mm-hmm. lot of golf to play. It's weird how in, with golf clubs, they can be extremely exclusive. I told you about the Los Angeles Country Club, how they still don't allow any Jewish members into the... Into, right. even, even if you have the $200,000 to fork over a year to join... If you're Jewish, they say no. That's you got to go to the Riviera Club. That's so crazy. I can't even believe that that's okay. In 2020. Yeah. Money, I mean, with money comes power. And with money, you can manipulate the law, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if, if that's how it is, I, I'm Jewish. I wouldn't even want to Right, join. right. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a lot of wealthy Jewish people who would love to join that club. They just can't. Yeah, agreed. But yeah, tell me more about what you've been doing with Zendrop. Because you launched Zendrop, like Soft launched it now about... 14 months ago. Yeah. So <laughs> it's fun. You were the pretty much the only person to help market the platform. Um, when we first spoke, we were expecting, you know, maybe 500 to a thousand people to sign up after your video. That's what you told me. Yeah. That's what I told <laughs> And, you know, it's not an easy business. There's so much communication. There's so many logistical things to deal with. And the day that we launched, we had 8,000 people sign up. And then that first week, we had 20,000 people sign up. And when we launched it, we were making promises that we can source products in one to three days. And we were ready to do that for 500 people, but not for 20,000. So we were like, we really pumped the brakes. Over the last year, we've been focusing on making the, the user experience as good as it could be. And it's one of those businesses that you need feedback loops. You need to know what's wrong to make it right. You almost can't create a perfect product, especially in the logistics and especially from China off the cuff. You need to launch something, get feedback, make iterations. And we've probably, I mean, we've had thousands of of items in development since we launched. So we've been really just dealing with the customer base we have, um, haven't been putting anything into marketing. We have about 80, 85,000 people on there now. Damn. So it's a fun project. I mean, we're, our team is just, so passionate about it, you know, and our team, our leadership team, like we're all in the same like realm of spirituality and yeah. like bettering ourselves. And we get on calls every day and it's kind of like a family. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel like work. It feels like we're creating something that's, you know, really fun to make. And you're big into spirituality. You're actually the first one, first entrepreneur who I ever heard talk about meditation. Really? Yeah. The first one I read it in your book on the way here the first time. I'm like, that's interesting because I, I never put meditation and business together. I always thought they were like separate, you know, but it seems like they go hand in hand. Like that, That's what a lot of people think. I mean, for me, at least my life is just so much better when I just kind of simplify it because classic. there's so much shit going on all the time. Like you're, get, you're getting blasted with DMs, with emails, with text messages, WhatsApp notifications, the news, you know, your news on your phone popping up. And it's so easy to get your mind distracted and manipulated mm-hmm. by the content that you're addicted to seeing. Yeah, that, as it's programmed to do. Yeah, and exactly. And But with meditation, you know, as and there's only so much you can comprehend from a conversation or from reading. You really comprehend it at a deeper level once you start practicing it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I've been really practicing meditation now for about two or three years, but I, I started maybe like eight years ago, but I've been re- really getting into it seriously with the meditation room in my house where I spend a non-negotiable hour in there every day. Damn, you're up to an hour? Well, I'm not necessarily sitting in meditation for an hour, but I have a sauna in there. I stretch. I clear my mind. I play nice music. It's got fountains and lights. And it's like, you know, I have so much going on between Zendrop and then like some other business ventures 
that sometimes I don't know where my stress is coming from. Right. Like, I don't know what's making me have this like little bit of anxiety here and there. But when I sit and I just let my mind relax, the things bubble up. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like, oh, it's that conversation that I have been meaning to have that's been on the back of my mind. But there's so many things on my mind that it's like, I don't know necessarily what's causing that feeling. So that's just, that's one of the benefits. And you've taken it a step further recently. You deleted all social media. You like downloaded sometimes, but for the most part, it's off your phone. I download Instagram once per week to check my DMs. Yeah. But I have a, I have a very uh, like addictive personality. So I'll just find myself sometimes like opening my phone and subcon like I'll go to do something and somehow I'll end up on Instagram. Yes. And then I'll like see something that triggers me to go do something. Or actually really like the worst thing is like first thing in the morning, sometimes I would open Instagram. Yeah. And the the thing I don't like is that I don't have control over the energy that it gives me. Like mm-hmm. I may get I may get the nicest message in the world and I feel great. But I may also see something in politics or some riot or something that like gives me this ugly emotion. Mm-hmm. And especially first thing in the morning, like our energy is very fragile. So we're very like, you know, malleable based on what we consume. And I would go on Instagram and it would like start my day in a direction. I'd have to get back on track. Yeah. There's no need for that. I'm the same with the Robin Hood app. <laughs> if you check, checking that every morning, it's like you might have a good day and you might have a bad day. Yeah. That, that's why I don't, I don't, I trade options, but I'm never doing more than like two trades at a time. Otherwise yeah. I'm like, I got to look at it every five minutes. Right. And when did you delete all the apps? Like when did you, what made you cause that decision and when did you do it? I think in, inside I like, I knew I just needed to like get, get it off my phone and mm-hmm. I deleted it a few times and redownloaded it. And, and I'm not against it. Just for me, it doesn't necessarily need to take up that space in my life. So I, I deleted it probably about six months ago. Gotcha. And so just before started. the Social Dilemma movie. Yeah. Have you seen I, that? I actually literally just watched that like yeah. years ago. Everyone's t- I've been talking to people about all the problems I think about social media and everyone's like, you got to watch the Social Dilemma. And I watched it and it was like, everything I'm thinking and way more. Mm-hmm. So it was cool because it like kind of validated a lot of the thoughts I had. Yeah, it's really strange because I never really thought about how like when the tech companies came, they're kind of in a gray area and now they're in a real gray area because they can control the information. And furthermore than that, they can basically control the population. With one, like when he said with Facebook, they can make one little tweak and affect a third of the world. That is unbelievable power. And it's going to be interesting to see with more and more pressure coming down on them, how they regulate it. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty crazy to think that the smartest brains in the world and like thousands of them, their sole objective is to make you as addicted to their technology as they could, because those are the KPIs that they use to gauge how their business is doing. You know, I I used to work for Yik Yak. Right. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, and we were a fresh startup. I mean, it lasted maybe three years total. I came on very early to help with the marketing. And the the KPI was how many daily active users, how many monthly active users, and how long are they spending on the app? And the more those numbers were up, the better the company was doing, the more money we can raise at a higher valuation. Yep. So that's that was the job. And it wasn't like, uh, when, when you say that, I guess a lot of people will probably picture you like behind a desk, like, doing all this work, you were having a, like a great time doing the marketing for Yik Yak. Yeah. I have to say that was the best job that I could even imagine. Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, when I first started my career, I was throwing concerts. I owned a company called electric flurry. You can look it on YouTube. It was, it's still there, but we used (laughs) to throw the world's largest foam party. 
mm-hmm. and we did it all over the country. And the way we would market it is we would go to new markets. We'd go on campus. We would literally bring a MacBook Air. We'd have like, like hey, like hand out flyers. Hey, can you help us with something? Log into Facebook, use a JavaScript that would invite everyone's whole friend list. And like in a week, we would have 200,000 people invited to an event page. And we would sell out an event that nobody had ever heard of. And then Yik Yak caught wind. You know, they raised their Series A, $10 million. Their goal was to get college users on. So they reached out to me asking if they could sponsor my shows. But like, I took a big crash and burn and like didn't have any shows going on. So I was like, you know, you should use the same marketing tactics I was using to sell shows, but to give out a free app, mm-hmm. you know, go to campus, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they loved it. Literally the next day, they're like, can, like, can you fly to Atlanta tomorrow at 6 a.m.? I was like, sure. Damn. Went there. I kind of like had a vision for a tour, like, cause we had a big budget. Mm-hmm. I never had, I never even knew that you could raise $10 million at that time. Right. So like I had kind of like a, a marketing budget I was developing. So I was like, we need to get a, a tour bus. We need to wrap it. We need to get a mechanical yak. Yep. We need to get a mascot. Yep. We need a team of promoters. We need koozies, cups, t-shirts, ping pong balls, everything. We need to go on campus. We need to make a scene. We need to film it. It needs to go viral. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much had a month to like plan all that. And then, uh, and then I lived on the bus for four months as we went to like all the schools and we had no idea what we were doing. What year was this? This was 2014, I think. Like, uh, like the first semester of 2014 is in like August. Yeah. Like, well, I can't, I started working. I remember August 1st for Yik Yak Mm -hmm. and the tour was scheduled to go out on September 12th. So I had like a little bit over a month to do all of this shit. I had no idea what I was doing. I had to find a tour bus negotiate it, hire a driver, do background checks, get a bus wrap designed for a 45-foot bus, get a mechanical yak built. I had to figure out what schools to go to, find hotels at every town that would accept a 45-foot bus with a trailer, find a, a student on each campus, hire a whole team of promoters, and like just plan out all the little things in between. I had a month to do it. So when you're on campus, were you like, when you're doing the promotion, were you like there at the table? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was wearing the mascot Dude. sometimes. I was. Oh, really? Because here's the thing: we, we, there was eight of us on a bus, and I was leading it. So you had to lead by example. Mm-hmm. If I thought I was too good to get in a mascot costume, what's that going to say to everyone else? Yeah. We had one goal: it was to get one thousand downloads on each campus in two days. However, the hell we wanted to. That was the goal. I feel like you easily broke that. Oh, we crushed it. Because, well, it was a network effect. So if we got a thousand, we knew it would grow to four thousand within two weeks. That's insane to me because all I'm thinking about is like, uh, like we definitely crossed paths and I definitely saw you at one point because that's right when I went to Mizzou and you went to Mizzou like to tour, right? That, well, actually, that was, I actually threw a concert at Mizzou, an electric flurry show. Right, right. But then you, you came back, right? Because I remember the Yik Yak. Yeah, comment. but that was the second round of tours. So after the, the first tour uh, was such a big success that the next semester we, we got two tour buses and went. Uh, one in the Midwest, one on the East Coast. And you went to the East Coast. Well, I didn't actually go on those tour buses. On either I was okay. managing those at that point. Gotcha. And then after the whole experience, we realized that the cheapest way to get a user was simply to hand them a pair of Yik Yak socks <laughs> in exchange for a download. It was like 88 cents a pair of socks. Yeah. As opposed to doing the whole tour, we were like, we simplified. Yep. Instead of getting a bus, all this stuff, all these people, the mechanical yak, we literally, because we had to go global after we kind of took over the U.S. Mm-hmm. So we had to go to Australia, New Zealand, England, Ireland, you know, a bunch of other places. Did you go on that trip? Yeah. Gotcha. It was so cool. We, we would ship like 20,000 pairs of socks <laughs> oh, to <man>. Australia <laughs> and ship our mascot. 
And then uh, me and my friend, Sean, who is also working at the company, we just flew there. We hired two people who were native to the country and we'd go to like anywhere from like seven to 10 universities mm-hmm. and just literally go on campus and like figure out what to do. Like sometimes we'd go into bars and we'd be like, hey, uh, we want to buy 500 shots and we're going to bring a mascot in here. Is that okay? Oh my gosh. And like most of the time they're like, what do you mean you want to buy 500 shots? And the mascot would hand out the shots? Yeah. Wow. Because, yeah, in certain countries, the drinking age was 18, you know. Oh, man. <laughs> it was it was so fun, though. It was like, the mission was get 1,000 downloads. Yeah. I feel like a freaking, like, sp- like, secret service agent. Like, go on a mission, make it happen. How many downloads did they have before you came on? Uh, 100,000. And how many did they have after? After the first tour, 10 yeah. million. And how, what about the second, God damn, what about the second tour? I, I don't remember the number. I just remember we went from 100,000 to 10 million in like four months. Is that when you knew like you are going to be successful forever? Because having that under your belt, like I always say, it's one thing to make a lot of money. It's a whole nother thing to make a lot, to have a lot of real good experience because the experience itself is worth, it's, it's literally not worth anything. I mean, it's worth more than money because you can make unlimited money from the experience itself. Yeah, I mean, no, I didn't know right there. I was, gonna, I always had this like, this like naive self confidence. Like, I just like knew that, you know, I was destined to do something, which was probably a good thing. It was probably from like when I was, I was brought up well. You know, mm-hmm. my my grandparents, my mom. You know, they're always telling me I was good. Well, you know, getting my self esteem up and stuff. But the tour didn't, you know, signify that I'm going to do well. But I did have a lot of shares in Yik Yak. And we were trying to become a, a unicorn company. And had we reached that, you know, billion dollar mark, I would have been pretty wealthy. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the company went under after like two years. But I was the only employee out of like 81 at the time that sold my shares and, and made an exit. Yeah. And that helped me kind of get to the next step of my career. It's so weird how past cross like that because I used Yik Yak as my sole marketing for college campus videos, like one of my old YouTube videos. My whole goal was go go viral on the Yik Yak, get them talking about me, even plant Yik Yak so that they know where like what happened. Like when I jumped into the fountain face first, I was like, damn, some kid from college campus videos just jumped into the fountain. Did anybody else see that? And then the next like five yaks were all talking about it. It was like it was the weirdest thing. It was like an instantaneous reaction to what's happening on campus. Oh yeah. So when I did that, I planted one. But the other like five, six, seven, all came naturally is all over. There was a lot of interesting use cases for that app. A lot of people met their spouse and got married from that app. A lot of people sold drugs on that app. A lot of drugs being (laughs) sold. Yeah. It was funny because we'd be on tour and like we would see people making yaks about Mm -hmm. us. It'd be like, oh, like, did you see that, you know, that girl on the Yik Yak team? She's so hot. And Mm -hmm. like, we'd always be like, what are people saying about us? Yeah. We could see and it's anonymous. It was fun. Do you have like one specific story that comes to mind when you think of those tours? I mean, there was there were so many stories. Um, because you went to you went to college for a little bit, right? Did, you didn't graduate. I graduated. You did graduate. Yeah. Where from? Uh, New York. Yeah, SUNY Albany. Okay, I was I was in the impression that you dropped out. So you kind of like lived a second college life through all this. Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, I lived at Spring Break for a month which was really fun, uh, at Lake Havasu. Where's that? It's in Arizona. Okay. It's like everyone, if you're in college and you're on the West Coast, you know Lake Havasu. Um, you know, I hired my, my best friend, one of my best friends, to come help manage it. We had a team there, and we just lived at spring break. We got this giant 200-foot, uh, like 20-foot tall 
inflatable slip and slide. It would cost $54,000. It had a yak head on it, like squirt water out. And we put it at spring break. And literally, like, the, the job was, like, man the, man the slip and slide. Uh, they had concerts every night. It was, like, a big thing. So we'd have the yak on stage, the crowd surfing. We, like, the screen behind the concert would have yik yak stuff. So I was basically just managing the sponsorship. At that point, we, we had raised, like, $62 million more. So we had, like, huge marketing budgets. Did that you, was really fun. Did you bring any uh, electric flurry into that, as in uh, bring in some foam parties to the Yik Yak tour? I did not, actually. <laughs> that was or- originally my plan when they reached out was, like, how can I leverage this company to get electric flurry back in motion? But then oh, some- interesting. But then I was, like, that's really selfish. Like, that's, like, not in their best interest. That's in my best interest. Right. And I was at a point, I was at a low point in life because, like, I had made a lot of money when I was, like, 21. Yeah. And then I lost it all and I was, like, lost. And I moved back in with my mom by the time I was, like, 23. Mm. And I was, like, you know what, Jared? Like, you just got to be real, be true. And so that's why I, I didn't tell them, like, hey, we should do an electric flurry tour sponsored by Yik Yak. It was, like, if you guys really want to get people to download the app, this is how you should market it. Yeah. And it ended up leading to... You know, being at spring break, since, uh, you know, I built up a little bit of a reputation of being really good at marketing with Yik Yak, my friend was in China for the Canton Fair, and I was always interested in what he was doing, so he called me when he was there, and he's like, Jared, I got the coolest product, like, you have to check it out. I think you know this one. Yeah. And uh, I was like, what is it? He's like, well, I can't tell you what it is, but I'm going to send you one. And I'm like, you're going to send me one from China? He's like, yeah, I'm going to put one in the mail. He do that just for the wow factor? Like he didn't want to like ruin anything? Yeah, at the time? exactly. Okay. So I'm like, what? I was so curious. And uh, about a week and a half later, I get this box in the mail. It was a big box, heavy. I was mm-hmm. like, what the hell is this thing? Cut it open and it was a hoverboard. But nobody had ever seen hoverboards before. So yeah. I was like, what is this thing? Like no way this could work. I plugged it in. There was like five of us in, in the suite that we were staying in. And everyone's like, what is that thing? So, like, I get on it. Wait, was this during the Yik Yak tour? This was at spring break when I was oh, there for okay. a month. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, so it was in the, in the hotel room I was staying in. And I get on it, and I'm, like, sh- you know, shaking, like, wobbling. And then, like, I, like, catch my balance, and I'm, like, whoa. And I'm, like, going back and forth, and everyone's, like, oh, my God. Like, what? Is-? And I'm riding around the hotel room, and everyone's, like, freaking out, sending Snapchats, taking photos. So then I take it outside of my hotel room or, like, around the, the campus uh, of Lake Havasu, like the resort we were at. Oh, yeah. And everyone's like pointing and, you know, everyone is drunk and like freaking out, running over, like running over, like, where did you get that thing? How much was that? And I'm like, I don't know where to get it and I don't know how much it was. And like, that was the thing that sp- I was like, wait a minute, I should start selling these. And have you heard of dropshipping at this po- moment? No, I, I didn't even know anything about e-commerce or dropshipping. But I was like, I was like, you know, I have a lot of time. I was like, what if I go to Starbucks every morning at 7 a.m. for like two weeks? Maybe I could build a website. Mm-hmm. So I literally built my first Shopify store. I had a, a cameraman who was there with us who just took some photos of the product, videos of the product, and, uh, and I ordered business cards with the name of the website. And literally every time someone asked me about it, I would give them a business card. And I had found a supplier in China that would send them out for $350, and I listed them for $1,500. Just to see what would happen. So yeah, what, that's a good question. Like, like if if the, in my position, I would be like, okay, I'm gonna try to sell these for five hundred. Like, what gave you the confidence to sell them for fifteen hundred? That's such a huge profit margin. That's what it looked like it was worth. I mean, it was such a cool piece of technology, and you couldn't buy them anywhere, right? So I was like, 
1500 And people, I'm sure, did not mind waiting too much for something like that. Yeah, it was, I mean, I was probably handing, I wasn't actively trying to sell them, but it was just something I'd keep in my pocket and I would yeah. ride it around. And I was selling like one or two of them a week, which was a lot, you know, my my salary at Yikyak, I think was like $55,000 or $60,000. And so if I was selling, you know, making an extra thousand or $2,000 a week, that was a lot of money. Yeah. So basically at that point, I was like, how do I sell a thousand of these and make a million dollars? Like it started putting things in perspective. I remember... I was in Atlanta and I saw this. Have you ever heard of a Fisker Karma? Oh yeah, the electric car. Definitely. So I saw one that was like all chrome, and I was like, I was like, what the hell is that car? I was like, that thing must be like so expensive. I I looked it up and it was like it was, you can get a used one for fifty grand. Yeah. And I was like, so if I sell fifty of these, I can go buy one of those. It started Damn. putting things in perspective. So I started getting serious about like how do I sell a thousand of these? I started asking everyone like what would you do? Blah blah blah. Long story short, I ended up getting connected with um, the most f- famous person I knew at the time, who was my uh, soon-to-be business partner, professional snowboarder, Jack McCall. Awesome guy, super cool. Loved the product. He had like 15,000 Instagram followers at the time. Mm. And I didn't know anyone with followers. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. Like, what if, if Jack posts this, maybe people will buy it. You know, I didn't know anything about influencer marketing. He posted, a few people bought it. And then he's like, dude, I have all these friends in LA that have like 10 million plus followers. Oh, man. And I was like, you think, like, you think they'd be interested? He's like, let's go out there. So I flew out, uh, the, the kid, it was Nash Greer. Or was, was your carry on the, the hoverboard? Dude, this was, you were able to ride them onto the airplane. Oh man. Before they started blowing up. So I was handing out business <laughs> cards in the, in the airport. Wow. Yeah. Riding it right up into the airplane. Uh, like through the aisle yeah there's no regulations reminds me of the time where you could hit vapes in the plane like with the gray area go to buffalo wild wings after prom i was ripping my vape in buffalo wild wings they did not care (laughs) yeah so we uh we got there uh nash greer hate his brother hayes greer um a couple other kids that were like they were young maybe Mm -hmm. like 15 to 17 years old but they had like 10 million plus followers and i was like riding it around in their tennis court and they were like that thing's sick. They were riding it all excited. And I was like, you guys think we could sell a thousand of them? And they're like, a thousand? We could sell 10,000 of these. I was like, let's go. So they called over their manager that night. And uh, the manager, Alan, was like, he's like, dude, like they never want to do any of these kind of deals. Like, what What did you tell them? I'm like, nothing. It's just a cool product and a cool brand. So we ended up making a deal. They all threw in a little bit of money. We got inventory. And we... I had them post and we got like, we grew to like 250,000 followers in a week. We did like over 200K in our first month. And what was the name of the product? Glider. Glider. G-L-I-D-R. G-L-I-D-R. Huh, I can't, I don't think I've ever, I'm sure I ran into it. It's just not ringing any bells. Yeah, you can Google it and see a bunch of content from it. So let me ask you this. How many of those fuckers did you end up selling? Well, it was... October going into Christmas season. Perfect. And I get in contact with Mark Cuban. Oh, wow. I hear through the grapevine that Mark Cuban's buying the patent on these things. So I'm like, in my head, I'm like, that's really good news and really bad news potentially because I might not be able to sell them anymore. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know anyone who knew Mark Cuban. So I went on his app, Cyberdust. It's a messaging app. And I found him on there. And I sent him a message. Oh, really? I said, hey, Mark, this is Jared Getz. I own this brand, Glider. I hear you're going to be buying the patent on the hoverboard. I'd love to have a discussion to see 
if maybe we can work something out. Did you get a tip for that app? That's a, like a brilliant idea. Or did you just like connect that yourself? Uh, I don't remember how I came up with that, to okay. be honest with you. Anyway, he answers me. Very quick answer. Not much to it. And I'm like, I have to figure out how to talk to this guy. He's so rich and has so much more going on than me. Like, ah, I'm just some random guy selling hoverboards. So I end up sending him some more messages. He asks me for my phone number, sends me a text message. And he's like, like, hey, Jared, I'm going to give you a call uh, on Friday. And I'm like, okay. Sounds great. Like, I'm excited. I went, I, I went home to visit my mom, and I was like, hey, mom, I'm talking to Mark Cuban on Friday. <laughs> and she's like, oh, my God. Like, you know, proud mom and stuff. And, uh, so I'm, like, waiting all day Friday. Don't hear anything. And I, I was supposed to go out with my friends that night, too, because I hadn't seen them in months. And I'm like, I can't go out. What if he calls me, you know? So Friday, no deal. Uh, he texts me late Friday night. Hey, sorry, I got caught up with the family. I'll give you a call tomorrow. So the next day I went and, uh, so, so I ended up, uh, going out the next day and, uh, basically uh, we, we found this, have you ever heard of Kava? I think we talked about yeah, this. Yeah. We talked about this earlier. <laughs> Somebody was telling me about Kava and I was like, I'm so curious to try it. This is when you discovered it? Yeah. This is when I discovered oh, Kava. Okay. So we went to this Kava bar and I pounded this like huge bowl of Kava and, <laughs> and I like, oh, no. I wasn't feeling so good after I went back to my friend's, uh, apartment. And I, I had to throw up. Like, the kava was not sitting well in my stomach. So I'm, like, in the toilet puking. And I get a text from Mark Cuban. He's, like, calling you in two minutes. And I'm, like, oh my I'm gosh. literally, like, face is all red. Like, well, like my head hurts. I'm I think like, it wasn't a FaceTime. I couldn't have been. Yeah, this was, like, before FaceTime was normal. <laughs> but I was, like, I couldn't have been more in a worse state. So I'm, like, shit. Like, get it together, Jared. Just, like, ran down. We were up in an apartment. I ran down the stairs, went out to the street. So was it all physical or were you like mentally like a little loopy? I was mentally loopy, physically oh, not feeling good. I was not, but it was a good, you know, sometimes it's good to just push yourself in those situations. Right. So I ended up speaking to him. He loved the brand we built. He loved all the influencers behind it. And he wanted to work with us. His one stipulation was you can't sell these cheap Chinese knockoffs anymore. Mm. And this was right before you know, November, December, where we could have made millions of dollars, like right. many millions of dollars. Cause we, the brand was getting a lot of traction. I had one night where we were out and everyone from the uh, Anaheim angels, we had like a $22,000 order coming on Shopify. Like it was getting a lot of momentum. And did, were you given any discounts at the time for like multiple orders or were just like most people not even ordering more than Here one? Here and there we'd have an influencer post with like something, but basically the ultimatum with him was like, I want to work with you. I'll have the patent by February. In the meantime, you can't sell anymore. In the meantime. I know. And I was like back and forth and I was talking to my business partner and, and my business partner's dad and his, my business partner's dad was like, no, fuck that. Like, you got to keep selling them. And I'm like, but this is we, like, we can make like a couple million dollars or like we might be able to make hundreds of millions of dollars if we partner with Mark Cuban. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I ended up deciding to turn off the sales. I sent them an email like, look, you can't buy anymore. So, oh my gosh. And then he ended up not getting the patent. Oh my gosh. But it wasn't his fault. It was a lot going on. And then, right. and then there was, you know, the fires and the, mm. the batteries catching fire and the, them literally blowing up and right. stuff. So, but it was cool because it showed me that the potential of e-commerce, like that was my first like entryway into selling anything online. And what'd you do with all that leftover stock? We didn't have that much stock. We just kept selling out the stock. Okay. Yeah. So like a couple hundred units. 
Yeah, I think we were importing like 50 at a time, 100 at a time. We weren't selling... Remember, we're selling for fifteen hundred dollars each. Right. We weren't selling that many units. We're like maybe, maybe a couple a day. Uh, yeah, like ten, ten a day. That was yeah. geez, that's like twenty thousand a profit a day. Fifteen thousand, twenty thousand a day. Yeah, it depends on the, it. Depended on the day, but we also didn't run one single Facebook ad. We All influencer campaigns. I didn't, yeah, I didn't even know Whoa. what Facebook ads were. I didn't know anything. But at that point, I was like, you know, I'm making fifty five thousand dollars at my job. We just did like. 200 something thousand dollars our first month with this product it's like i think i need to quit my job and go to china and find the next product we were going to expand on the glider brand so uh, my partner and i jack he lived in seattle we we decided we're going to meet in china and is this after you heard that mark's not getting the patent yeah this was right around that time it was like it wasn't happening yeah, it was like right after that time. And did he break the news to you, or did, did you just hear through the grapevine? No, he was in contact. It was, but it wasn't like the top of his priorities. It was top of my priorities, right? Of course, yeah. But it didn't end up working. So Jack and I are like, all right, let's go to the Canton Fair. Canton Fair, for anyone who doesn't know, is like the biggest trade show in the world. It's twelve million square feet, sixty-five thousand exhibitors. It takes fifteen days to walk the whole thing, and it's in China. Damn. Yeah, it's in Guangzhou, China. Is it all in one building? Um, it's in like four astronomically gigantic buildings that you can't even imagine unless you go in them. Wow. Like they're like, each building is like five football arenas, like Mm. huge. And it, they do it every year. So Jack and I are like, let's meet in China. We'll go to the Canton fair. We'll find something else we can sell under the glider brand. So we're like, you know, I've, I've got a visa. We book a flight there. We don't know what the hell we're doing. So anyway, this is actually kind of a funny story. Uh, I get to China after like a 24-hour journey. I was like ex- exhausted. My phone wasn't working when I got there. So I need to go get a SIM card. So I go to this booth that's like, you know, buy SIM cards here. I buy a SIM card, put it in my phone. It's like not working. And nobody speaks English there either. It was like barely in English. Yeah. So I like go back to the booth. I'm like, like, no, not working. She's like, you know, 20 minutes. 20 minutes. I'm like, okay, I'll wait 20 minutes. So I get my suitcase, come back, still not working. She gives me a new one. I wait another 20 minutes. At this point, I'm like in the terminal for like an hour. Mm. And I'm like, shit, my phone's not working. So I'm like, all right, whatever. Let me go get some cash. So I go to the ATM machine. My card's not working. So I have no cash in China by myself, no phone. Oh my. So was like, it working like earlier or was this like... The phone? No, the, the ATM card. Is this like yeah, I called the bank before I went to China to let them know I was traveling, but for some somehow it didn't work. Gotcha. So I'm like, okay, I have no phone and no money, and I'm in an airport in China. And I don't really know where the hotel is, nor do I know how to communicate where the hotel is. And is this, so this is like early 2017? This No, this is like 2015 or 2016. Oh, when were you doing the hoverboards? 2014, 2015. Oh, okay. I thought it was like 2016 when you were doing that. Okay, no, that yeah, clears it up. This is back further. Gotcha. So I found someone who spoke English. I borrowed their phone. I called American Express and I was like, hey, I need money. I'm in China. And American Express always hooks you up. Oh, so yeah. they like, they're like, okay, where are you? Blah, blah. They enabled cash. So I like went to the machine. I got cash. Then I go out to get a taxi. And I had the name of the hotel written down in Chinese, but like, I don't know if it was right or not. So I get, I get in a taxi and I'm in this taxi and I'm like behind these metal bars. Like that's what it's like back there. Mm-hmm. you like, so you can't grab the driver or something, I guess. It's like a cop car. This Literally. This guy didn't even say, know how to say hello. Like, there was no form of communication between us. It wasn't even like, hi, hi. No, nothing. It was like, so I get in the car. 
I hear the phone ringing on uh, on his speaker, and somebody answers, and like, you know, hotel, and I'm like, uh, Lan Hai Hotel, I'm like talking in Chinese, blah blah blah, I'm like hang up the phone. I'm like, okay, I think he might have got the hotel. At this point, I, I gave the driver all the cash I had, and I still had no phone. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, my hotel's. I th- it was like 15 miles away when I booked it. So I'm like, all right, you know, it should be maybe 20, 30 minute drive. I thought maybe 15 minutes if it was quick. Get in the car and it's like 6.30 p.m. So it's like starting to get to dusk, a little dark. We're in the car for 30 minutes and I'm like, I don't see this hotel anywhere. In the car for 45 minutes, it's getting dark out now. I'm in the car for an hour and I'm, I cannot communicate with the driver. Is he driving at all or is he just sitting there? No, he's driving. Okay. We're driving and we're like, now we're in the slums. Like we're mm. in like the... Like the, like the ghetto of China. And I'm by myself with no cash and no phone. So at this point, I'm an hour in. I'm like, there's a good chance I'm going to have to like sleep on the street tonight because I yeah. can't communicate with anyone and I have no money. So, so I'm like, I'm kind of getting all nervous now. So like hour and 15 minutes in, I'm like, oh my God, Jared, like, what did I get myself into? I don't know what to do. Yeah, and you can't like borrow someone's phone there because n- not even numbers, like nothing well, the numbers, but like, there's no letters. That yeah. you, can, you can't, you can't even, even communicate with the guy with the phone. Yeah, it, dude, it, and I couldn't use the translator because I had no service. Oh my gosh! It was so. Anyway, an hour and thirty minutes goes by, and I finally see my hotel in the distance. Like, no way! I'm like, oh my god! Like, thank god! So I get to the hotel. I'm exhausted. I connect to the Wi-Fi. I let everyone know I made it there alive. I'm safe. I'm here in China. Everyone was all worried about me. And I fall asleep, and then I'm, like, praying my business partner, Jack, would make it in. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, like, you know, he's supposed to be there in, like, two hours. I'm waiting up for him. He's not there. So I fall asleep, and I, like, wake up to the door opening up. Like, five hours later, <laughs> his flight was delayed. And I was, like, you made it. Like, we both made it. We were, like, okay, we're here. We're wow. in China. And that was the start to our trip. It was a from there is an epic trip. So do you think he took the actual right route or did he like go way off and then finally find it or what? To, to this day, I don't know. I don't know. Wow. Because you don't, you can't read, there's no street signs you can read. Everything's in Chinese. Mm. I can't even comprehend anything. There's like nothing for me to know. And what'd you find at the fair? Did you find any good products? So yeah, we, we actually, we went around, we, we were like testing all the things you could ride, like these like, you know, unicycles that like were self-balancing and all this cool stuff. And then we came across those inflatable loungers. Oh yeah. So this is where like, things kind of took off. We, we found these inflatable loungers. It was a very hot booth. Everyone was there. Everyone's trying to buy them. And I'm like, we need like, you know, four pieces, four samples so that when we get home, we could film content. And they're like, we don't have any samples. Like, I'm like, I'll give you $500 for four samples. <laughs> and like, of course they agreed to it because they love you oh. know, money over there. And I, uh, yeah, we basically got four samples, flew back, filmed a bunch of content. And we're like, all right, we got to figure out how to sell them. Because we, we placed an order too while we were there for like 300 pieces or something. And I didn't know anything about Facebook ads still at this point. It was only influencers. Yeah. And we, could, we didn't have enough to send to influencers. We had this order on the way. So I found some guy on Upwork who can run Facebook ads. And we were like right off the bat getting like a 5X ROAS. Damn. And that was my first experience with Facebook ads. And this is 2015? This was probably like, yeah, 2015, 2016-ish. That sounds like 2015 Facebook ads. <laughs> so we started getting it to work. And uh, Jack and I decided like, let's just move to L.A., We'll get an office. Like, let's do it right. So we like 
we didn't know anything about fulfillment. We didn't know what we were doing. We just had all these inflatable loungers and we had really good content. So we rented this house and we were like shipping all of them out of the house. We had like hundreds of boxes on the floor. We didn't even have a printer. Like we'd go to FedEx and like borrow <laughs> a printer. Like, you know, like print everything out there, come back to the house, slap them all on, drive them all to the post office. And yeah, that, that was kind of like my uh, entryway. Well, yeah, that was kind of my entryway into e-commerce. Is that the product you did the $2 million on in 60 days? So, that, yeah. So, I f- basically, we were selling our high-quality branded ones at like $80. And, and how I, much were you getting them for? We're getting them for like, you know, $10. Not bad. But our CPAs got up to like $35, $40, you know, at that point. But we weren't only selling online. We were selling, you know, on Amazon. We were going to trade shows, going to expos. We had a lot of teams on the ground at, like, music festivals. Didn't you do some mall stuff, too? Yeah, we were trying mall kiosks. We were trying everything. Again, we didn't have a patent on the product. But um, after grinding for, like, two years, like, selling these things, a year and a half, two years, we did a couple million dollars in sales, but, like, our bottom line profit was, like, maybe $200,000 total. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't really much to like live in LA for both of us. And yeah. it was a struggle, put it that way. Yeah. And I, I discovered drop shipping at that point. I was like, I think I probably told you this story. I was at a trade show and we were talking to people all day and I was exhausted. And I had a flight the next morning back home. We were in Dallas mm. and I was about to go to sleep. And I'm like, I get an email on my phone. And it's like how to sell products without ever seeing or touching them. And I was like, uh, Do you remember tired. from who? Yeah, it's from John Mack. John who, Mack. Who owns uh, Commerce HQ and we're doing uh, business together now, which is so funny. When I talked to wow. him, I was like, bro, you changed my life. And I'm about to go to sleep. And I'm like, let me just check the email. It's like, <laughs> I open the email. It brings me to a webinar and it shows me how to find products in AliExpress, sell them, and then fulfill them using Overlow. And I was like, that's amazing. No more inventory, no more trade shows, like just marketing. So I was like, let me try selling my same product, but like a knockoff version of it, like a cheaper one, a $35 one. And that's when I started getting like, I was spending like the first day I tried a $5 Facebook ad and I got like $50 in sales. You yourself? Like this is the first time you're doing Facebook ads? First time for myself doing Facebook ads. And you said you're selling what? The cheaper version of that product? Cheaper version of the same product. Yeah. And were you getting it for like a couple dollars? No, on AliExpress to get them shipped, it was like twenty-two dollars. But I was selling them for thirty-five, and people were buying two or three. Oh, okay, I see. So you're going uh, more quantity, but uh, at a at a slimmer profit margin. Well, n- well, after that whole drive that we mentioned before, mm-hmm. I was spending like anywhere from like I was spending probably like ten to fifteen k a day, and doing like fifty k in sales every day. So I was making actually a bigger profit margin because the average order value is like fifty or sixty dollars, and then if I was shipping out two, it only cost me like twenty because the shipping price was better. But, and then I think you know what happens next. Burlo fucked you over, real bad, real bad. I got so let me take a quick sip of water because I've been talking a lot. Absolutely, I was gonna say those hoverboards. The way you said about that reaction that when you first wrote it. Have you seen my nine-bot go-karts? Yeah, you get the same reaction. I get, like, I thought, okay, the i8 got a lot of attention, okay, the Tesla after a trap got a lot of attention. Nothing even comes close to riding those around the city. I've had people chase me down on cars, screaming at me out the window, like, where did you get that? How much, like, (laughs) all everywhere I go. And it's so weird because 
if like when I'm sitting at a crosswalk and I press go, I always say like to my friends, I'm like, look, I guarantee you 99% of people who pass by in cars are going to turn their head. Every single person, every single time it's every single time. And like when we're driving through the park, like when Fez was over, I'm like, just brace yourself because it's like <laughs> an uncomfortable amount of attention. We came down this hill and there's probably like 50, 60 people in the park. Every single head was staring at us and they only go like 13 miles per hour. So you're not going too fast. Yeah. So you like, I really don't know what to do half the time because first of all, everyone wants to have a conversation. I, I'm not stopping for anybody. I'm flying by, but that's, that product has the same exact effect. They're just not marketing it too well. Right. Well, they're a big company too, though. They yeah, I think Segway. Yeah, Segway them. owns them now. Yeah, so they need to get on the influencer marketing game. Yeah, they do. The mailman's here. The Amazon lady. Every day, <laughs> every day. So shout out to Jeff Bezos on that. <laughs> Jeff Bezos. Hopefully you hear this. Um, yeah, so doing very well with this product. I thought maybe you know, on at the end of my drive when we were doing like fifty k in sales, I was like, okay, if this lasts one more day, like. I thank the universe. Like, there's no way this can keep working. Fast forward two months, like, like clockwork every day. So I'm back in China for the Canton Fair. Finish up in China. I decide I'm going to go to Thailand by myself for a week. I go to uh, Phuket. I'm just loving life at this point. I, I couldn't Fuck spend yeah. enough money there. It was, it, was, it was so much fun. I'm like, I found myself in a long tail boat by myself with this guy who barely speaks English from Thailand, driving it in the middle of the ocean, in the pouring rain, screaming on the top of my lungs. Like, that's what life was like right now. Wow, there. that's like straight out of Shawshank Redemption. That, like, <laughs> scene at the end when he just, fi- you're finally free. Yeah. That's probably the moment when you really realize, like, you will be successful the rest of your life. I had, like, this incredible energy going through me. And life ebbs and flows. I mean, so I was at an incredible high. And then I had, like, three more days in Thailand having fun. One of my virtual assistants reaches out and she's like, Jared, you know, we found about 50 tracking numbers that aren't working. And I'm like, yeah, we're doing 2,000 orders a day, 50 tracking, just, you know, figure it out. Next day, she's like, Jared, we found about 150 tracking numbers that aren't working. And I'm like, yeah, we're doing 2,000 orders a day, 150 tracking numbers, maybe it's an error, like, you know, figure it out or refund the customers, like, whatever. And then the third day, I'm getting on the airplane to fly back on a 24-hour journey where I had to stop over once, and it was a long journey. She goes, Jared, we, we found 500 tracking numbers that aren't working. And now I'm like, well, that's a little bit alarming because if there's 500 that they found that aren't working, like, how many actually aren't working? Keeps going up, too, you know? <laughs> so, so I get on this flight, and I'm, like, thinking about it, and I land in Florida, and the first thing I do is open my phone, go on Skype, hit up my VA, I'm like, What's the scoop? She's like, yeah, we found about 1,500 tracking numbers so far that aren't working. And I'm like, uh-oh. And how many orders were you doing a day? 2,000. Okay. But that they found so far. Right, right. And this was, you know, and I had nothing against Oberlow, but it was an Oberlow trusted supplier. So I was like, at least Oberlow is like theirs that I can like go hit them up. It wasn't like I was just going through AliExpress, which right. I would have been screwed. So I ended up talking to them, getting in touch with their CEO and we started running scripts on all of our orders and we identified over 7,000 tracking numbers. And that's 7,000 tracking numbers for average order of $50 each that we had to not only refund people, but we're getting chargebacks. We're getting horrible comments on all of our 
ads. Were your payment processors shutting you down at this moment? Not quite yet. Like PayPal wasn't on their bullshit yet? That was like the least of my concerns at that point. Okay. I I basically lost like $450,000 like like that. Mm. And not only did I lose the money, which I would have been okay with, but my my Facebook page score dropped so much that they shut down my ad accounts. Uh, My... Anytime I ran an ad at all, it was just getting hit with negative comments, yeah. angry customers, and it basically ruined the business. Like, had I not crushed it for the previous two months, like, I would have been out of business. Yeah. But I was like, should I keep doing this? Should I give up? Like, I don't really know. And I was like, you know, if I was able to do this with one product, like, there's no reason I can't do it again. So I was like, let me just test a shitload of products. But at the same time, I'm getting like a thousand emails a day. I had to hire another 10 VAs to answer all the support. Anyway, long story short, we ended up testing more products, finding more winners and like getting back on the track. But that store was probably going to do like 10 to $15 million that year. Yeah. But instead it did like five. Before this, we were talking about like scammy e-com guys. That just shows you're not a scammy e-com guy. Like I know a lot of people who would get in that position, cut ties immediately and run with the money. Yeah. I mean thing is like drop shipping such an easy business model because like the burden of inventory is not there that you sometimes have to deal with the downfalls of it and i accepted it and uh you know just kept going with it so that website's actually still up right it's kind of like use it because when i looked it up two years ago it was like this this website no longer sells but it's up as a case study because i think i guess you linked it in your course yeah but i'm so far beyond that now that i don't even like think about it anymore yeah, now you're into the into the supplier side. You, you, like, do you think that situation is what inspired Zendrop? It was definitely one of the big reasons. You know, uh, making fulfillment easier. Fulfillment's such a problem, and the the problem is that a AliExpress is horrible. I don't even have to explain why. Mm-hmm. And B, you get all these sourcing agents that are really good at because they know what we want. They want we want fast shipping. We want cheap prices. So they're really good at selling you on it. Maybe shipping out your first hundred orders really well. And then cutting, t- cutting corners on quality, on shipping, yep. and making their margins here and there. They might ship out, if you're doing 100 orders a day, they might send out like 20 of them slow yeah. and like change the quality. So we wanted to basically you know, be able to provide the same sourcing and fulfillment solutions that we had. So I, originally, we took on uh, our main supplier as the main supplier for Zendrop. But recently, about three months ago, uh, we did a joint venture and opened our own warehouse in China with our own employees, our own sourcing team, our own logistics. So now we have full control over the operation. Yeah. And I was in a similar situation when we first met, I told you about that, uh, about these, these Chinese suppliers just lying to me. I was selling those masks at the time and I'm like, you know, they say it's going to be there in three days and then three days goes and they're like, no, we still don't have it three days goes. Cause I sold out all of Ali, AliExpress completely. And then you're like, you should hop on this, uh, this Zen drop. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just like, so you so Berlo. That's right after I like met uh, Tomas, the founder. I wish I would have known this story because I would have asked him about that. I yeah. bet he remembers you very well. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, we like each other. Yeah. I, I'm nothing, I had nothing bad to say about them. It wasn't because even the, so, you know, we have our own warehouse and our own fulfillment in China. We still have to deal with thousands of factories based mm-hmm. on the products. And the factories lie to our own employees. They, it's a big thing in the culture there, like beating around the bush and not being honest to, to win business. Mm-hmm. It's hard to navigate that. Yeah. I remember I used it and then that's, that's what allowed me to scale. Like, like I remember because, do you remember this? Like I had, 
I can't remember. I had a couple thousand orders that never went out. And yeah. And then you guys bulk fulfilled it for me in a day. Well, you sourced the product in a day and then they shipped out two days later. And it's just like, I've been waiting a month. My PayPal got limited because of that. Luckily I got it back. They shut me down recently. Have, do you, are you aware of all the PayPal bullshit that's happening right now? No. Oh my God. It is really bad. I'm ever since COVID started, I guess they've been trying to like recoup a lot of their losses I know one guy who lost, who uh, Luca actually just lost a quarter million. Uh, Noah lost fifty. Um, my friend Angela lost fifty, and they won't tell you why. They take oh, the money. Oh, I heard about that. They take it and they say because you violated our policies, we're not giving you this money. And I'm like, what policy? Because I got mine permanently banned after like five, four or five years of using them. The other day, and I'm like, what is the issue here? Like, I have the tracking numbers, I have all this, and he's like. You know, they didn't say, but just know they do a thorough investigation every single time. And it's just like, I feel like there's a class action lawsuit because uh, Junior, my friend, he also lost a couple hundred thousand. So they're organizing a class action lawsuit against PayPal because it seems like they're literally kind of doing like a bully method where it's just like, we're, we're, the, we're like bulldogs. It's like when I was working for two men in a truck and like they fired me and then took $160 out of my paycheck before they gave it to me to train the next person. <laughs> I went in and I had it on recording. He was like, uh, you know, if you try to play the legal game, you're going up against some uh, bulldogs. And if you come in as a pit bull, we're going to chew you up and spit you out. <laughs> so I kind of feel like that's how, what PayPal's playing. I got that money back, by the way, because I'm like, well, I got a lot of chihuahuas. So we're going to come back with this. As I was leaving the building, I got a call and he was like, all right, we'll print you the check. Wow. So I think PayPal is kind of power tripping right now. Yeah. I mean, what, you know, also because of COVID, there's... And, you know, as Zen job, we got, so we got hit first when you promoted us and we had way too many people come on. Yeah. And then second, we got hit by COVID, which for people who don't know, a lot of shipments from China come on commercial airlines. Mm -hmm. And obviously there was no commercial airlines flying from China to the U.S. So like everyone's trying to figure out how to ship things. Do we ship them via boat? Do we have to ship them different ways? Wait, so at this point, I never knew that, that there was no Chinese airlines whatsoever. I didn't like, so all the products in general, that were coming from China to the U.S. halted completely? Across Not the all of them, but, like, like there was probably, like, 70% less flights going on and more shipments because people were crushing with Facebook ads. Yeah. So customs was backlogged. The, sh the post services in China were backlogged. And what happened is, why I'm tying this in, is more chargebacks across the board. So companies like PayPal were taking huge hits with chargebacks, yeah. you know, if you start running money through PayPal, you take your money out and you run away. And then two days later, somebody charged back, you know, PayPal is liable for that. Right. So PayPal was probably trying to recoup funds that way. We ran into issues with merchant processors whose portfolio wide chargeback ratio skyrocketed and banks would stop supporting that. So it was a whole big problem. What processor do you use for Zendrop? Stripe. Oh, just Stripe? Yeah. That's good. And that's good because... A lot of people have bad, uh, bad reputation with Stripe. I love Stripe. I don't know about you. I've never had a problem with them. It depends what you're doing. If you're, you know, as a software solution, like for us, we have a lot of members on our pro membership. Um, we do a lot of transactions, very low chargeback rates for Zendrop, very lenient with refunds. Um, so we never have any issues with Stripe. They actually give us a really good deal on processing. I mean, it's... Still expensive. We're still paying two and a half percent of our revenue to them plus a transaction fee, but they're very helpful for us. And you know, their tech team was really good for integrating. And our system is so complex 
that we need data across like every platform to be able to reconcile and make sure that we're paying the right amount to China, make sure we're refunding. Like it's a lot going on. Stripe has been a good solution for us. So you haven't run into any problems with them yet? Not for Zendrop, no. I mean, I've had problems with them in the past with like e-commerce stores. Gotcha. So where do you plan on taking Zendrop from here? Because you have 80,000 members, right? Right now? Yeah. So no marketing, 80,000, no marketing, not a, not a dollar in marketing. So we are, uh, releasing a new, uh, program called Zen vision. I don't want to get into too much detail on it, but I'm extremely passionate about having very structured books. I think not a lot of entrepreneurs have a good eye on their cash flow. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, they see $3,000 in sales on Shopify and they're like, Oh, I only spent 1500 on ads. I made 1500 bucks today. But it's like merchant fees, you know, chargebacks, refunds, um, all the other bullshit in your business. Oh, I paid a freelancer $40 here. You know, I, I paid for my developer to do that. At the end of the day, you may maybe only made $200. So Zen Vision is going to basically reconcile your daily P&L for each of your stores and then go against a master sheet that shows you all of your cash flow. And you'll actually see where you stand as far as your net worth as an individual and how it fluctuates each day. So that you can see the impact of your business on your money. Right. So it takes it a step further than order metrics as in it ties in your personal expenses as well. We, yeah, we literally, so I've been using the same bookkeeping method and like iterating on it for the last four years. So we're taking the method that I use that I, I get a spreadsheet every day. It's called my master sheet. And all of my businesses have a daily P&L the profit and loss sheet mm-hmm. and all those daily P&Ls reconcile into one master daily P&L to show me how much money my whole, you know, enterprise made that day or lost. And then that goes into a master sheet and it, you know, we probably have anywhere from five to 50 expenses each day between little things like Hulu and going to dinner to developers, to employees, salaries across the board. And I see how my net worth fluctuates each day, but it gives me a very, clear peace of mind that a my money's not being leaked anywhere nobody's using my credit card for facebook ads somewhere else yeah like i know exactly what's going on and if i didn't have this system in place i wouldn't have the confidence or foundation to be able to build better things so we're building zen vision to give that confidence and that vision into people's businesses for the everyday e-commerce entrepreneur. Yeah, especially like a lot of e-commerce, most I would say e-commerce entrepreneurs are very young. So when you're making, I've seen it time and time again, like especially like someone who's like 18 and they just start making this money. They don't really understand, like they don't know what to do with it. I was the same way when I started making money, but now I got like, you know, life insurance, the SEP IRA. It's like that stuff is very important, but overall it's super important just to be aware. Yeah. Be aware of what's going on so you don't end up in the hole like a lot of people then they get desperate and then they do desperate things. Yeah, and then forget about it. Like you think you made all this money and then you don't realize you owe this and then your taxes come up yeah. and you have nothing. And like, but you've heard, but the problem is a lot of these people have built up this ego that like, oh, I'm successful. I made 40 grand last month. And it's like, well, no, you didn't. You made like $400 at the end of the day. And they have this ego to uphold to. And now they don't have any money. So now they, they don't feel good enough to themselves. And now their confidence goes down and it, leads to depression, it leads to anxiety. And like, it's a big problem. So, you know, the software that we're releasing is ideally at a surface level going to help these types of problems. That's going to be so sick. So outside of Zendrop, what is your other focus? Because I know the main focus is obviously Zendrop. 
what would you say is your other focuses besides golf and the dogs? What, what, is there anything else that you're really like passionate about that you're working towards outside of those things? Yeah. I mean, as you know, I took a, a big break from social media. Um, I am going to be coming back, but with a different personal brand. I don't want to be known as the e-commerce guru. Yeah. You know, life kind of pushed me in that direction and it led me to where I am and I'm grateful for it, but that's not the legacy I want to lead. You know, I want to be talking more about the things that make your life fulfilling, simplifying your life, you know, meditation, things like that. So I'm working on a new book that's going to be teaching ancient wisdoms and techniques for the modern day world. Um, working on a podcast. Uh, that's really where my, and, and the thing is like, you can't do too much stuff or nothing will get the mo- enough attention. Yeah. That's what, that's what actually happened to me when I had Ecom Hacks Academy, I had Zendrop, I had all my stores. I had, uh, you know, e-com VA services we were offering people, consulting, we were building stores for people. Like, I had so much going on. My, my energy was so scattered that we weren't making any serious progress on any of the projects we were working on. So, so when you simplified all that into a few main things, what was the, uh, what do you think the effect was? What, what was the effect that you noticed? It allowed us to grow something special. I mean, we have over 80,000 people on Zendrop now. Um, I'm happier than ever, you know, less stressed than ever. Most important. It's the most important. I mean, you're, you're going to die with nothing anyway. You mm-hmm. better be happy on this planet. Yeah. And when you're happy and you're in a good mood, you know, the thoughts that you need to proceed and keep moving forward come naturally to you as opposed mm-hmm. to you stressing out and cha- trying to figure out what to do next and, and keep focusing on what you don't have. If you just, you know, focus more on what you do have and why you're happy and what you, you know, what you want to be like as a, as a person, as opposed to what you want to do, then the thoughts that you need to do what you want to do come to you naturally. Do you listen to your intuition more or do you listen to your uh, brain more? Intuition. Intuition. 100%. What do you think intuition in itself actually is? I think that, I mean, this can go down a really deep hole, but I think Let's that go we're, there. We're, we're not our, our minds. We're not our minds. We're mm-hmm. not our bodies. I think that there's a separate entity that we actually are, our souls. Our soul. And our soul has knowledge that is oftentimes totally, you know, blinded by our minds. I think our minds are, especially today, when our minds are being, there's so many impulses that are causing so many thoughts that aren't actually helping us, that blind our intuition. But sometimes it shines through and you feel the right answer. Mm -hmm. So I think simplifying your life quieting your mind actually strengthens your intuition. Yes. You know, sometimes, as I mentioned earlier in this topic, is like you get, you feel like something's off. You don't know what it is. You're stressed, but like you don't know what you're stressed about. And your mind is just circling and like you're keeping all of your tasks and things that you want to do are like swar- like circling and you don't want to forget them. So like you keep them up there. And like, you know, if you forget them, you'll feel better, but then you might lose something. So like mm-hmm. getting organized and dumping all that stuff off your brain and it's some kind of organization system and then focusing on quieting your mind allows your intuition to get stronger. And when your intuition is stronger, like I said, like the thoughts you need to progress come to you from mm-hmm. your intuition. It's not, you're not looking for it outside. You got to look within. Yes. A lot of people only look outside. Yeah. My thoughts are, I have two theories on intuition. One comes from outwitting the devil how the intuition is the other self and the more you listen to that other self and then the stronger it gets and all that. But my other 
uh, theory is that the intuition is directly linked to the subconscious. And obviously the subconscious tracks everything, keeps stores everything. It's like a hard drive back there. And I feel like that intuition is the sixth sense that's directly, directly being accessed through the subconscious and it's giving you that data. So when you have an intu- intuit, intuitive thought, it, I feel like it's, a, it's like a compiled formula and calculation by that subconscious that does all these like equations, does all this, and then spits out the exact thought you need. And I was listening to Jordan Peterson on the way here, and he's like, every so like all the time, people will have their conscious will tell them to do something. They'll tell them to do this, and then they don't listen to it. And inevitably, what they fear will happen does happen. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I, that happens to me all the time. Like, my intuition says, this isn't a good idea, this isn't a good idea, but I do it anyway. Every single time, my intuition was right. And it's like a muscle, you know? Like, if you're only working on your right bicep and you go to lift something with your left, it's not going to be as strong. So you want an equal strength on both sides. I agree, and I, I think that a, a key is, like, if you do listen to, to your intuition and you take action based on it, you're actually taking action in general, which leads you to the next point, which could open up anything like you mentioned something earlier about mcdonald's how the guy who was selling the milkshake machines got an order for eight of them and he was like eight we don't ever sell eight and then it was actually 12 and that led him to selling milkshake machines to all of mcdonald's or whatever the story was yeah there's only one mcdonald's at the time right whatever the story was but the point is sometimes if you don't listen to your intuition your mind is conflicting and you don't actually take any action you actually revert back in and do nothing and you're like I'll do it tomorrow or like you get on Instagram or you watch a movie and you don't you just don't do anything but the key is that you don't necessarily need to do the right you don't have to make the right choices every time just make a choice yeah because making any choice in most cases is better than making no choice making the the worst of the two choices in most cases is better than not making any cuz it leads you to that next thing and Builds that confidence. Yeah. Like Elon Musk. People are like, how the hell did Elon Musk build Tesla? It's such a big undertaking. Like, how can you do that? Along with two other major companies. Along with two. But it's because he's been consistently doing things and moving forward and building his confidence, building his network, building his people, building his infrastructure to be able to take on an undertaking like this. He didn't sit in his room and do nothing and just think Tesla to existence. He made moves, which led to more things, which led him to Tesla. I bet you he didn't know he was going to build Tesla when he was 16, 17 years old. He was just coding games at the time. Just doing things. Have you read his autobiography? No, I'm I sorry, just biography? I haven't. It's really good. I'm you sure. Check it out. He has a weird upbringing, really strange upbringing. I'm sure. Seems like an extremely intelligent guy. Yeah. I think a lot of people get crossed between what they should be and what they want to be. And I think the brain, oh, yeah. the brain is kind of saying what you should be. Like, play the safe card. This is what you should be. Your parents, when you do this, do this. Mm-hmm. And I think the intuition really tells you who you want to be. Because all the time, I get the question. I think the most common question I get is, how am I supposed to figure out what I want to do in life? That's step one. Because if you start going down the wrong route, like um, Ty Lopez said, one of the greatest tragedies in life is finding out you got really good at something you don't like to do. Yeah. Well, I think on the topic of figuring out what you want to do in life, it's important first to get yourself in a really high energy state Mm -hmm. and let that come to you. Like sometimes 
people will be depressed or tired or just, you know, eating chips all day, like sitting around on their computer and like, what do I want to do in life? Like your vision's not going to come to you in that state. Mm-hmm. Like if you get up, pump out 50 pushups, scream a little bit and bump some music and you get yourself in a high energy state and then you think about what you want, that's actually what you want. Like sometimes when you're in a low energy state, and you start thinking about your life, you start thinking about how it's not good or like I should be doing something else or blah, blah, blah. But then you get in a good state and you're like, no, I'm on the right track. The key is first getting in that good state. And I think knowing that it's, it starts with your physiology, it starts with your body and you're you know, getting your endorphins going before you should even start to plan what you want to do is, is a key for a lot of people listening. Yeah, and I think a lot of people think that they're going to find themselves by making money and that they're going to be happy. Like the, it's so cliche, but that, that theory that money makes you happy is not necessarily true because I remember one day specifically, everything was going wrong in this day. It's just horrible attitude. But I think I made like $23,000 that day. And I'm like, this is really interesting because like this money would have changed my life a while ago. And this money is still a lot of money today but I'm not feeling good about it. I'm not feeling good about it. So at the end of the day, you can be a super rich fucker, uh, but you can be miserable. Like hundred percent. But the thing is that, you know, people kind of need to have that experience. Kind of like when we were talking about meditation earlier, you can only comprehend so much through words or reading or hearing something. You have to experience it. I think that if you're chasing money, like chase it, make it, and you'll realize that it's not what leads to fulfillment. Mm -hmm. You need to experience it. You need to experience the highs and the lows. Yeah. Something that really stood out for me in the Outward in the Devil book was he said, disappointment cured my stubbornness. And before COVID, I was on such a winning streak. I started feeling like I knew it all. Like every, anything I touched, it seemed to work really well. And then like I was going to hit the bottom of the stocks and I missed it. I didn't put money in and kept going up. I'm like, it's definitely going to go down. Kept going up, kept going up. And that's when um, at the time I had that, the, who later became my mentor, and before this, like if I started, if I put in that money into the stock market and to this day, it's still making money, I probably would think like, see, I can't fail. Like I, I know it all, you know, but since I missed that and then took some losses, the disappointment cured my stubbornness. And like going back to that, going back home from LA and all that, that, that really showed me a lot. That was like real low times because everything shut down. St. Louis, there's not much to do but at least there's the parks. Let's shut the parks down too. I'm locked in this stupid ass little apartment, just horrible. And then that really not only made me learn about myself, but made me really appreciate what I had because I had it for two years. And then like, it kind of like, I got in that situation where it was like, I just moved here, but I've explained that so many times on the podcast. Do you know, do you know what happened? Did I explain this to you? I don't know. Okay. Let me explain it to you. Okay. Especially... Because the context is important. When I, I had the house in L.A., dream life, okay? This is exactly what I dreamed when I was 10. Uh, COVID started happening. I'm like, okay, I'll keep an eye on it. I flew back home late February because I'm like, I'm paying 3000 for this apartment in St. Louis. I'm not even here. I'm just going to get a cheap apartment for like 1000 It was like a two-bedroom just for a place to stay whenever I visit St. Louis rarely. And then I go home February 28th move everything out of that apartment that I loved into this, just like right next to my parents, it's like, there's like one window in it. Cause I'm like, I could care less. Like, so then I fly back and 13 days later, they're talking about shutting down the, the state. And do you know, at hustler? Yeah, yeah. This fucker threw me into a paranoia because he's like, 
Here's video of them at the California border. Trump's making the announcement tomorrow that he's sealing all the borders. Get out while you can. All this stuff. So he's like, I mean, it was like, it looked like a long centipede. His story it was all fear, 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 oh fear. Oh my God. And I'm like, I think this is going to, I think people are going to start fucking destroying the city. I think people are going to start killing each other over food and stuff. <laughs> so I'm like, I take, I pump everything in the I-8. I didn't know I was leaving until the night before. Pump everything in the morning, drive out. Trump, Trump's like about to make this speech. I'm going like a hundred because I think they're going <laughs> to, fuck hustler, fuck hustler. That's just one thing I want to say. So then I get back and I pull into that apartment and I'm like, it's not too bad. You know, it's cool here. And then I had the I-8 all in cash. So I bought that 75,000 cash. I'm like, the stock market crash is here. I got to get this cash. So I sell the car. I get it in cash. And he drops me off at the Tesla place. And they're like, okay, you can lease this Tesla for two years, but we're going to need 40% down. And it's going to be like just a stupid amount of payments. And I was like, like I'm not going to do that. It kind of defeats the purpose of me selling. Like I went zero down so I can put all this money in the stock market. So then I'm like, why am I getting these horrible deals? So then one morning I'm like going between Tesla's and I'm like, you know, I'm just going to get a Camry for now. It's right up the street. And I'm like, cause I don't really need it. And I, and I was like, we'll see. So now I went from this house in the Hollywood Hills with an I-8 in the garage to this tiny apartment with a Camry. And I'm like, you know, maybe I should go. I called 212. I'm like, maybe I should go back. And I'm like, now I'm going to be paying three leases, <laughs> this apartment, this new apartment and 6,000 a month for the Hollywood Hills home. Like, I'm just going to stick it out here. And so that put me in a position which was really interesting because I'm like, this is what my life would be if I never tried. This is exactly the life I would have. My dream car back four years ago was the Camry. <laughs> I got the Camry. And outside looking in, it was really interesting because I knew people were making comments like, oh, Scott lost it all. Scott lost it all. It's like just in profit alone in March, I made six figures. So I, at this moment, I'm living the lowest quality life uh, I've lived since I like left my parents, but I had the most money I've ever had in my life. So it was like really fucking confusing in my head and all the time I'm deep into stocks. And so that's what really taught me that environment's everything. Like, you know, you like when I wake up in this beautiful home, I just feel motivated and indirect investments actually talk about in your book. When you get, in, when you get into your old Lambo, you're like, it just makes me feel, feel good. And that's when I talked to you, I'm like, I realized, and that's when I tweeted that you talked and you're like, you knew this, bro. Uh, yeah. you, you got to feel like a million bucks to make a million bucks. And I did not feel like a million bucks whatsoever in that apartment. And, uh, that just taught me so much. So disappointment cured my stubbornness. That's, that's an awesome story and really relatable probably to a lot of people and a great lesson to learn. But I also think it's really important to be able to find happiness with nothing. I think that that mm-hmm. building that foundation is important because a lot of people listening are probably like, well, this is why I'm not happy because I don't have, I don't feel like a million bucks. But in reality, if you can make yourself happy with nothing, with solitude, with yourself, with what you have, that'll attract that other stuff into your life. But if you focus on what you don't have, if you focus on, oh, I don't have that house or I don't have the, that car that I want, you're going to keep getting what you're focusing on, not having things. Didn't that happen to the Dalai Lama or is that Gandhi? Like, wasn't he like a prince and he had everything? And then one day he woke up and just gave it all away and went to the mountains. I don't know that story. I think it was the Dalai Lama because I was reading his book, The Art of Happiness. I didn't finish it, but I'm pretty sure he talked about that in there. And see, that's just a whole nother level. For me, like I, I grew up in a very, like I wouldn't say, I, it's, it's hard. I don't want to get into the details, but I hated my environment every single day of my life until I moved out. And environment sucks. So when I went to college, it was like, I think a 400 square foot dorm room with two people in it. 
And so it was like bunk beds and all that. And so I'm like, I always dreamed, I was always thinking Hollywood Hills or just having a nice apartment in general. Every place I went, worst car in the parking lot, 98 Accord, 260,000 miles on it, PGA sticker from my grandpa <laughs> right on the side of it. So like just like just having the, these these things in my head of always wanting this, always wanting this. And I know it might sound materialistic, but when it comes to environment itself, the life I'm living is not anything I'm used to, not anything my family's used to, and nothing I've ever seen before back in St. Louis. So to go from that down to there taught me a lesson. I guess I'm still working on finding true happiness outside of environment. But I know for a fact that what I learned from that, for me at least, environment plays a major toll on my mentality. Yeah, I totally understand and totally agree. I also went through some really similar things. Um, You know, it's also important to know it. Maybe you're a little bit different than me, but once you have eyeballs on you, once you're getting all the attention, it's a lot of pressure to uphold an image. Yeah. So for me, like getting off social media, getting rid of the Lamborghini, going to, you know, a a modest Tesla Model X, like (laughs) it looks like, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's like less flashiness, less attention on me. It allows me to, to really, I'm I'm more of an introvert too. Mm -hmm. I like to kind of be on my own and do things. Um, But it allows me to do what's true to me and like actually focus on the things that matter to me, not the things that I think matter to other people. Yeah. And that's an important thing as well. And you mentioned how you had a similar situation. I'd love to for you to get into the, de- the details of that because that was your first business. And you mentioned that earlier on the podcast. Yeah. So, you know, I, when I was 17, 18 years old, um, you know, I was always hustling, trying different things, car wash businesses, moving companies. You did car wash businesses? Yeah. How'd you do that? A mobile car wash. Like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, like we had like a thing that we'd log in a, a trailer and go clean cars. Like stupid, you know, whatever. It was learning, right? Mm. And then I got the opportunity to, um, I found out that there was this guy that was renting out mansions in the Hamptons during prom season. And he would rent them out to prom parties each weekend. So he'd rent the whole house for like 15 grand for the month. And then rent them out each weekend for like 20 to 30 grand each weekend. So he was making a bunch of money. For sure. So me and my friend were like, yeah, we should do that. So we like borrowed some of my friend's parents' money, like rented the house, started doing that. And, uh, and it was cool. And it got me like, like okay, there's, you could make money in this world. So we, 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 got an, we basically did a favor for somebody's sister with one of these prom houses. They like lost their house. They, like, they were supposed to rent the house and like they lost it last minute. So we had a property for them to come to. So we did a big favor. And the girl who it was, her brother owned like one of the biggest concert promotion companies. He was like three years older than us. Like we all looked up to him. He was like flying around on private jets with Avicii, like, you know, really cool guy crushing it. And he's like, you know, to repay you guys, I'll give you the opportunity to partner on a Steve Aoki show in, uh, in Albany when oh, the yeah. tour comes there. And we're like, yeah, great. And he's like, we're also doing a Lupe Fiasco tour. Uh, if you want to partner on that too, we'll do back-to-back nights. Like, you got to find a venue and like, you guys will promote it and we'll set it all up. We're like, great. And it was like 2009? No, no, this was... Uh, 2000. No, yeah, 2000. 10 or 2011. That's Lupe was popping back then. Oh, he was number one billboard. Like, <laughs> yep. you know, all the lights or whatever songs he did. And, uh, and we're like, yeah, this is great. And he's like, all right, cool. You just got to come up with half the money. And I was like, how much is it? It's like, yeah, you, uh, you guys just need to come up with 75,000. And I was like, 75,000. Like, but we're like, this is a great opportunity. We can't pass this up. So I went around to like 
all my friends. I'm like, you want to invest in the show? Whatever you put in, you'll get your pro rate a share of profits. So we ended up raising $75,000 like between everyone in our fraternity, our other friends, you know, we made it happen. How many people you think put money in? Probably like 15. Oh, okay. Yeah. A fair amount of people. Some people threw in 10, some people threw in two, like Mm. whatever. And so we had back-to-back shows. So Tuesday we had Steve Aoki, Wednesday we had Lupe Fiasco and we were promoting it like crazy for a month, every day, going out, giving out flyers, going to campuses, you know, just doing everything we could to promote. We didn't know what we were doing. And Tuesday night, we sold out the first show, Steve Aoki, made $45,000 in profit. And I was like, wow, like, that's like, you know, what my mom probably makes in a year. I was like, that's insane in one night. Like that was your cut? It was like the total profit on the show. I don't remember exactly what it was, but... It was our half of the profit. But okay. then I had to pay back investors. and Right, right, right. So, like, I didn't make 45 grand that night. But it, the, our half of it produced $45,000 gotcha, in okay. profit. And then Lupe Fiasco the next night lost $45,000. So, we ended, up, oh. we ended up breaking even. But I was like, you know, we generated, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars in ticket sales. And the reason we didn't make a lot of – that we basically broke even is because we paid – Steve Aoki and Lupe Fiasco, so much money to be there. How much did each charge? I think Lupe was like a hundred and Steve Aoki was like 35 or something at the oh, time. Damn. He was like still newer. Like yeah. he wasn't that popular. And, uh, but it was, I was like, you know, what if we threw a show that we didn't have to pay these artists? Like, what if we came up with our own show? And we're like brainstorming. And this is back when Life in Color was called Dayglow. They did like the big, the world's largest paint party. Yeah. So we're like, what if we like came up with the world's largest foam party? Like we'll come up with our own spin. So I was in college, like I was in the library, like making a flyer and I was like super into it. And I made a flyer and we booked the same venue that we did Steve Aoki and Lupe Fiasco. And we learned how to market a show. So we did it on Halloween. And I remember we were like, we're selling a lot of tickets and we were like close to breaking even and I called the Armory. That was the name of the venue. And I'm like, hey, Julie, like, um, you know, somebody just tried to buy a ticket and it wouldn't go through. And she's like, let me check. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, you guys sold out. And I was like, oh, what? We, we, we sold out, like, all the tickets? How many, like, how many tickets? It was like 2,500 tickets. Damn. I was like, what do you mean you sold out? She's like, yeah, there's no more available. You sold out. I was like, I like looked to my friends. I'm like, we just sold out this show? So... We made like 50 grand on that show, profit, because it was a much lower production show. We didn't have the artists and the tickets were cheaper, Yeah, but we were able to make more profit. And I was like, I had like seven business partners at the time. It was, I was pretty much running shit, but then I had like all different people in my fraternity and, you know, we kept a lot of the people who invested in the first shows as partners. Um, so it's, I was like, this business model is amazing. What if we do like, you know, 10 or 20 of these shows a year? So I ended up partnering with one of the people. Um, we did our next show in New York City at Webster Hall, sold out. You know, mm. we had like billboards over the Lincoln Tunnel. Like we were like Damn. doing it up. And I graduated and I moved to South Beach, Miami. And we booked our first show there, sold out. We booked another show, like sold out. We were like on top of the world. Like I had this like, I'm like, I knew I could do this. Like, you know, built my ego up, like. 21 years old, like living in Miami, throwing these shows, getting you know treated really nicely out at nightlife. Like and nobody can tell you nothing. Yeah, I was like 
on top of the fucking world. And then we did our a show at the Mullen Center at uh, UMass Amherst. Which is that at? Uh, Massachusetts? In Massachusetts, okay. yeah. And the Mullen Center is like their basketball arena. And it was like, I was like, I want to do one on a campus, like in their arena. And like, they finally approved it. And we budgeted like 95 to 100K for the show. And I imagine they're all like on the floor, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. on the floor. So we budgeted 95 to 100K for the show. Uh, the show ended up costing us like close to $300,000 to put together. And it was because we didn't know how to manage our cash flow. We didn't know, like, we didn't have good bookkeeping. We didn't have things organized. And we needed to sell about 3,000 tickets to break even. And we only sold 1,000 tickets. Mm. So I lost all my money, everything I had. Plus, I lost an investor's money, like 50 grand. And I couldn't pay some of the people, like the stage and light guys. I couldn't finish paying them. And I went from, like, on top of the world, nothing can stop me, to, like, rock bottom. Mm -hmm. Like, like I had a big falling out with my business partner, moved back to Long Island into my mom's apartment. And I was like, just super like depressed and didn't know what to do. And I just started, I was like, I gotta start from the basics. Like, let me try to clear my mind. I started running every morning. I read a book called um, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And it was like, oh, yeah. it opened my mind to like, like meditation, spirituality a little bit and like be more gentle on myself and like, Cause you know, I was just such a, I was, I was so distraught about the whole situation. And then I just started learning how to like, let go and be happy. And then that's when the, the, uh, yik yak opportunity came to me right after that. It couldn't have been a better time. It was a great lesson. Like I had no, I literally got an email from a guy named Cam, who's a good friend of mine now from yik yak saying, Hey, our social media apps interested in sponsoring your shows. And I got a bunch of random emails. So I was like, all right, whatever, sponsoring our shows. Was this before or after that show? This was after everything. Okay. When we had, yeah, we had nothing left. And uh, I didn't expect that that day. You know, I didn't expect anything. I didn't know what I was going to do. And literally the next day after speaking to him, I flew out to Atlanta. So this, so he hit you up after the rock bottom moment? Yeah. I wonder if you finding that book and finding that meditation somehow led to that moment like basically surfacing well i'll tell you this had i not gotten into the right mindset and had i not gotten that book had i not been more gentle on myself i probably would have tried to manipulate that relationship to get them to invest in, in my show so i can keep doing it wow but i was like at peace and i was like you know i gotta just be genuine and selfless and like let me just tell them what they should do if they want to work i had no intention of them hiring me it was like, here's what you guys should really do. So that's what inspired you to not have them sponsor it. That's what inspired you to have a more self selfless approach and have it go a, a full yik yak tour. Yeah. And it was like, let me wow. just give value. And like, I have no expectations to the value. I'm okay. You know, I'm, he I'm healthy. I'm, you know, my, I was trying, starting to become grateful for what I had. And being, put, being in that state of mind, like people could feel your, have you ever like spoke to someone and you know, they're just trying to get yes. something out of you probably yes. all the time, right? The agenda. But then do you ever meet people that are just like genuinely good? There's some people that go over the top, like, how can I add value to you? Yeah. Like, what can I do for you? Let me work for free. And it's like, all right, relax. I listen to Gary Vee a little too much. Yeah. Relax. Okay. We don't need this help. But if someone's <laughs> like, Hey man, like just thought of you. And like, I think this would be helpful. And like, and it is helpful. Now I think of that person as someone who I respect. Yes. And if I have something to do, I, I would work with them. So 
that definitely taught me that lesson. Wow, I wonder how different your story would be if you didn't read that book. How'd you come across that book, by the way? I don't even remember. I don't remember. The book found you. Yeah. The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be ordering that right now. That, that is, that's, yeah, that's probably the, the first book that opened my mind to meditation and spirituality. What was the main takeaway from it? Well, it was about a college student who went to Berkeley and he was like an all-star athlete and he like thought he had his whole life figured out and he went to the gas station to get gas and the, the attendant was like this quirky guy who worked at the gas station and he like told him something about his life that wasn't good and, and the kid's like, who's this gas station attendant to tell me? You know, he's just a gas station attendant. And then like he encounters the guy again and he teaches us something and then the relationship develops to a point where the gas station attendant teaches the kid wow. that his whole life is wrong, that he's in a relationship that he shouldn't be in. He's living for everyone else's purpose. He's not doing what's right for him. You know, takes him on this journey, talks about meditation, makes him happy, and totally changes the kid's life, the gas station attendant. Did he keep going back to the gas station? or did Yeah, they, oh, yeah, they wow. keep like, hanging out in the gas station. Wow. Yeah. So I, I just noticed something. You got a new watch. What is that? Oh, this is, um, it's, it's called a mem- Memorigen. It's a company based in Hong Kong, and they make uh, tourbillon movements. Yeah, that reminds me of that one watch that I used to have. Remember the watch company yeah. that sponsored me? But like a watch like this, you know, they're like $7,500. Yeah. But they like look super sick. I got it on Touch of Modern. Oh, yeah. I have a collect. I love, thing is like, I think, I don't wear watches like be flashy or like, I don't even really wear them that often. But I like having them, like collecting them, because it's like such a cool little piece of machinery that you mm-hmm. can wear on you. And they go up in value. Yeah. All my every watch I own, I got at a, a price lower than what it's worth right now. You got an AP stolen. Twenty three thousand dollar AP, right? Yeah, that was a that was a moment where I was like, I'm never gonna buy another watch again. Mm. But you know. I'm sure that went up in value too. <laughs> it's out there somewhere. Somebody yeah. It got stolen from me in Vegas out of my uh locker at the spa. Man. Now, what's your daily routine? Do you have a daily routine that you usually stick to? So I've honestly been through so many different daily routines, you know, reading and learning from other people that it depends on the month. I I haven't been in like the same routine for a year, but depends on where I'm at in life. Um, As of right now, my daily routine is I get up around 6.30 or 7. I like to get at least like seven or eight hours of sleep. First thing I do when I wake up is I focus on relaxing. I don't focus on like my problems from the day before. Um, I don't focus on what I have to do. I like lay in bed, drink some water, and I just like focus on feeling peace and relaxation. And then I read 10 pages of a book. That's the first thing I do. And then I go right into my meditation room. And, I'll and you're not looking at your phone at all until no. after the meditation. Occasionally, if there was like someone that I was waiting to answer me from the night before or like something I was dealing with in China, mm. I might look at it really quickly, but I really try not to. And then I'll go into my meditation room. Um, I, I burn some Palo Santo. It's good for the energy. You know, I, uh, I put on some good music. I go in the sauna. Um, I sweat a little bit. And then I go and I hang upside down in my teeter machine. It's like the thing where you can hang. And Are those the things you strap to your ankles? Um, you know, you put your legs in it and then you like rock back and you're like, Oh yeah. So I like hang outside down for like a minute, get like a bunch of blood rushing to my head. I like massage my face and my head and like, just kind of like wake myself up. And then I'll do, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of stretching 
like deep, deep stretching my hips, my uh, hamstrings, my back. Uh, and then I'll do anywhere from 15 to a 45 minute meditation, depending on the day, depending on what I need. Um, and Sundays, I always do a Joe Dispenza meditation. It's called Blessing of the Energy Centers. And it's where you go through each of your chakras and you focus on them and you basically like heal them. Did you learn that, that in, in his book? I read about it in his book and then I downloaded it from his website. Was it Becoming Supernatural? Was that yeah. book classic? Yeah. That's a highly recommended book. Yeah. I need to go deeper into that because that's a long ass book. Yeah. I have a copy here if you want to borrow it. I got a copy at home. I have so many books that I need to read. Yeah. And it's a shame. I know Warren Buffett reads like five hours a day. I think the key is just, just like I set my goal to read 10 pages and I typically end up reading like 15 to 20 each day. But it's like after a week or two, I'm through, I'm done with the book. Yeah. You know, I'm reading actually uh, Autobiography of a Yogi. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, I have. That's For some reason, I've been seeing that everywhere lately. It's like 600 pages long, so I'm still not done with that one yet. What's but, that one about? Uh, it's about uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. He's a guy who grew up in India. He learned about Kriya Yoga, which is like this very sacred form of spirituality. Um, and it's his journey of meeting all these different saints and sages and like mystical people and then coming to America and bringing it here. It's an autobiography of his life. Gotcha. It's really entertaining. Do you know anything about transcendental meditation? I, I know of it, but I'm not, I, I don't follow it or like know too much. I hear a lot of good things about that. That's where my mentor strongly recommended to me. And he's like, these are the people who do it. He like mentioned like Jerry Seinfeld does it. Like, it's really interesting. I got to dive deeper into it, but I know they're tm.org. Yeah. He says that's the, one of the most powerful things I can recommend. I, I think honestly, any type of meditation is really powerful. I know transcendental meditation, you use mantras and you repeat it over and over again and you calm your mind and you practice it twice a day. But I think there's a lot of different types of meditations. Um, you know, I like my focusing on my energy, yeah. you know, really get focus on my breath for like, I'll focus on my breath for like a minute or two until my mind is clear. And then I focus on my third eye and I really focus on being aware that I'm aware. Like right. I'm like, if I'm aware that I'm aware, who am I? And it brings mm. me to that higher self. But you need to cl clear your mind first to do that. You can't just be like, oh, I'm aware that I'm aware. You need to like get yourself. It takes me about seven to 10 minutes to get into that state. And then the longer I stay in that state, the more really good ideas come through me. Gotcha. And I keep a notebook in my meditation room that's and sometimes I'll read the stuff I wrote and it's like, whoa, like how did I come up with this? Do you write while meditating? I typically will do it when I'm done. Gotcha. Like, I, like I, and I, the thing is, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I need to write this right now. And it's like, no, just relax. So you'll remember it. You mm -hmm. will remember it. And if you're not all flustered, like you typically will remember it. Yeah. Now, do, have you ever had anything supernatural happen to you while meditating? Like, do you, do you remember anything specific where you get on and you're like, whoa. At one point, I think I've I've astral projected. I've like, it was during my forty five minute meditation, the Joe Dispenza one, where I focused on all my chakras, and then by the time I got to the last one, I was like in a different realm. Mm -hmm. But some of the stuff that I wrote down are like ideas that I could never have thought of by having a conversation or by reading a book. It's like stuff that literally flows through you when you're in that state. Mm -hmm. And I think that I believe that you know some of the most the, the best people in the world, the most famous actors, the best athletes, they've mastered themselves. 
Yeah. They've been able to figure out, like when I'm golfing, for example, I've gotten much better at golfing because I'm able to calm my mind and master myself. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, and trust my body and separate my body from my mind. And you told me something interesting about golfing. You're like, it's especially like it adds value if you walk during golfing. But at the end of the day, when you golf, you see a far reaching goal. Yeah. And you get there by putting the ball in the hole. And then it trains your brain to look, you see something in the distance and then you get there. It's kind of like what you told me about living in an elevated surface with, with far reaching, uh, visuals yeah it tracks far reaching goals yeah i learned that from jeremy our friend oh really jeremy. yeah wow he told me that because i told him i golf on it oh, that's actually really good because um when you have when you have a long distance view it attracts you going far places gotcha doing good things the first time i ever meditated i had a supernatural experience i asked oh, yeah? rejected really so basically i was 19 i knew nothing about meditation again like when St. Louis, nobody's talking about this. Right. Now it seems like it's, there's an overall like kind of awakening happening in people where I see it. People are talking about this all the time. And it's really interesting to see where this is going to go. But I was in Colorado and we went out there and it was the second day. It was in Breckenridge pouring down snow. So you know how like when it's really snowy, everything goes completely silent. You don't hear birds. Yeah. It's completely yeah. silent. So I remember uh, my friend Aaron we were looking for weed at the time, and he asked some guy in the elevator for like an eighth, and the guy gave it to him. So I like took, it was my first time smoking in Colorado, and I took two hits, and then he didn't have a pass, so I had to go meet my friends at the top of the, of the mountain. It's like probably five, ten minute rally up there yeah. on the, what do you call those? Uh, uh, the, the, um, the ski lift. But the ski lift, yeah. Yeah, there's another name for it too, but yeah. So I hopped on there by myself, and it was just completely quiet, snowing. I'm warm because I'm like all bundled up. I'm like, something told me to try meditating. So I like close my eyes and it's like, I've never meditated where I can't hear a fucking sound. It's completely silent and I'm just swinging there. And all of a sudden I felt myself get lighter with my eyes closed. And I'm like, like, I just felt, I'm just like, I'm going to let myself go deep into this. And then I let myself go deep and all of a sudden my vision like turned black. And then I like astral projected above the United States of America. And I look down and I see it's the United States of America, but everything's black and the states are outlined in light blue, like the color of my shorts. And have you ever seen Donnie Darko? Yeah. Remember the orbs? Yeah. So I was in Colorado and my friend Ben was in Illinois and I saw, I was way up there, dude, the whole country. And I see in Colorado an orb start to form and it forms and then it goes and then it goes into uh, Illinois. Like, it's crazy. Look, I'm shaking a little even talking about this because yeah. I haven't thought about this in a while. And the orb went to Chicago where my best friend Ben was at the time. And I just, I'm like, let me see if I can communicate. And I'm like, tell Ben to call me and see how things are going. Tell Ben to call me. Did and he I, call you? I did it like 10 times. So I didn't have my phone with me. So we're snowboarding. We only snowboarded for a couple hours that day. I get back. Right when I get back, the phone rings and no it's Ben. Way. And he goes, what's up, man? I'm just calling to see how things are going. Wow. And I'm like, why are you calling me right now? Like, what made you call me right now? And he's like, I don't know, man. Somebody just told me to call you and see what, what, like, how Colorado's going. And I'm like, whoa. And I'm surprised I didn't get deeper into meditation back then because that was one of the most powerful moments of my life. Yeah. I mean, there's a vast unknown world that exists in dimensions that we just can't fathom with our five senses. Yeah. So I, I'm totally, I, I mean, think about it, think about it this way. If 50 years ago, somebody said, Hey, you're going to have a little box in your hand that you can see someone from across the world on in real time and talk to, they'd be like, where are the wires? 
how could that happen? How can I, how, like, how's that going to work? But there's billions and trillions of little waves circulating our earth, connecting everyone right now. What, like, what's so crazy about thinking that you can't have some kind of telepathy? Yeah. What's so crazy about that? So if you went back 500 years ago and even said that, you get stoned to death. Yeah, you'd be a witch. Killed. Yeah, you'd be witch hunted. Yeah, you should definitely read the autobiography of a yogi. I need to. It keeps. It's like one of those books. Like it's like that book that you read. It keeps finding me. Like it keeps approaching me. It keeps finding me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. So, what do you think? This might be getting into too deep of a topic. What do you think? Like, what do you think the soul is? Like in terms of like where we are right now, why it's in the body, and where it goes after. Yeah, you know, it's something that. I don't know the answer to, that's for sure. I don't think anyone knows the answer to it. Um, some of the things that I've read like in the autobiography of a yogi is that your soul lives in, or you know, when you die, it lives in a different realm and then it enters a different body and you have ancient wisdom. You know, and the longer your, your soul has been around, the more intuition you have. You know, that's a theory. Um, I think that, you know, there's definitely other... I mean, there are other dimensions, right? There's a right. fourth dimension. There's, you know, a space between t uh, time and space. There's at least 12, I believe. That's what Einstein proved with his string theory. Right. So, you know, I, I think maybe your soul lives in another dimension because you could tap into it. And like, there's been times where I've meditated and I've tapped into my, my self who's aware that I'm aware and I've become that soul and time went either extremely fast or extremely slow. So I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I think it's some kind of different dimension. So in your opinion, where do you think creativity comes from? So I think creativity comes from a relaxed mind. I think that creativity comes from the opposite of stress. I think that if you can quiet your mind and you can get rid of the circulating thoughts, your mind can sometimes tell you a bunch of things that aren't true, almost always it's telling you things that aren't true. Yeah. I think quieting that and tapping into your intuition is where creativity comes from, at least for me. And I, you know, I can't speak for other people, but when I have creative problems to solve or I need to figure something out, like let's say I have to, you know, hire someone and there's like two people I want to hire and I don't know what to do and I don't know how to do it. And I sit at my desk and I think, I can come up with an answer, but if I go into my meditation room and I stretch and I focus on my body and I put on some good music and I feel good and I sit there, then that's where my creative energy comes from. It flows through me. So I think if you focus less on what you need to do and more on who you need to be and be more present in your body in the present moment, that's when creativity flows through you. So have you heard of the book War of Art? Not to be confused with The Art of War. No. War of Art. It's all about that. Um, Joey Diaz, it's his favorite book. And it talks about where creativity comes from. And in the book, it speaks on how the whole game, like a large, large part of life is eliminating resistance in so many different ways. And when it's kind of like what you're talking about. When you eliminate resistance, there's kind of that open flow. Mm. And the book states that when you, the true professional who does creativity kind of is a little humbler because he recognizes that the creativity isn't coming from him. It's coming from a muse or an uh. angel. And when you have that less resistance, you start to have creative power because you're literally not thinking too hard. Like a lot of people, maybe they'll be writing like a sonnet or like a, 
a book or like, or like even a song and they start to stress on the little details, when they start to realize that it's not them who is making this creative action, they get way less stressed, they get way less loose, and then it just happens. And I've noticed that in my own life. Like, when I just, like, don't worry about the details and just do, it's kind of, I've had points where it feels like, holy fuck, how did, this, how did I just do this? Like, it, I could, it's like when you're meditating, how did I have this, this idea? It could be ancient angels acting through our bodies. Yeah, well, and most people, when they're in these types of situations and they don't have what they want, they think way too much yeah. and they try way too hard. And then it's a, it's like a paradigm mm-hmm. or a paradox. Like you, you try too hard and then not, you don't realize that by trying less, you gain more in that yeah. sense. But I'm a, I'm a true believer that if you focus less on what you need to do and more on who you need to be and being present in your body and in the moment – and you speak with truth because you're not premeditating what you want to say or what you want to do. If you let it come through you, like when you're in a deep conversation and you let your words just flow from your soul, that's when the most creative words come. Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you about how I had the idea initially to like bring one product dropshipping mainstream? You should tell me. I was in a creek with my friends and it was at night. And all of a sudden, dude, I'm talking, my body started shaking and it got super, super, super hot. Like, I remember that very specifically. It was extremely warm and shaking. And it was just saying, one, because this is when I was trying, like, watch stores and bikini stores. Yeah. I'm like, I got to make this work. And then that night, I just started having that feeling, like a surge of energy came over me. And I'm like, holy shit, I need to write this down. So I wrote down one product, drop shipping, And in the morning, I Googled it. And there was one forum post about it on all the websites. Like I checked YouTube, I checked Google, and it was just that one forum post. And it was some guy like saying, hey, has anyone ever tried dropshipping with one product? And everyone was like, I don't know if it would work or anything like that. So I'm like, this might be my shot. This might be my shot. And I always think about that night because it's just like, what thoughts have I had that I've either ignored or what thoughts have I never even allowed into my head that could have possibly changed my life even further. And so right. when you eliminate that resistance, like, cause a lot of people would see that situation and be like, I mean, no one's doing it. So it probably doesn't work. A lot of people, like, I think the most success comes from when you do stuff that most that no one really has done. How, and how do you think you eliminate the resistance? I think is the question. You read the book war of art <laughs> because I can't, I can't say exactly all the steps he says, but it's really cool. Cause they're really short chapters and each chapter is a different kind of topic. And the whole book is about eliminate, eliminating that mental resistance. So there's another two books that are pretty much all about that, written by the same author. Um, one's called The Untethered Soul. And I've heard that, yeah. It's, you know, every chapter is a lesson about being present, about eliminating resistance, things like that. And then The Surrender Experiment is his other book. Michael Singer is the author. And The Surrender Experiment is the journey of his life. He decided when he was younger, like 17, he's just going to surrender to the universe and let whatever happens happen and go with it. And who the hell is he to decide? Because the universe wants this for him. And you watch his journey from like living out of a van in Mexico to like getting this little plot of land in Florida to like inviting some friends over to meditate, to like creating this big Sunday group to like going into an office depot and buying a computer. Cause he was just interested in it to writing his first piece of software to talking to some guy that wanted to talk to him. Fast forward. 
He's a billionaire. Wow. He owns a huge medical processing uh, software company that was acquired by WebMD, and he's a billionaire. All, and, and every step of the way, he just surrendered, and it allowed that next thing to happen. Eliminated resistance. That's, that's literally all it was. But the, the problem is that we all have this notion of what we think we need to be, mm-hmm. that when things don't go that way, we resist yeah. all the time. And not enough people are talking about eliminating resistance. Most people are talking about their Facebook ads. Yeah. Or most people are talking about what kind of checkout button should I use? Or it's like, well, hold on a second. <laughs> you got to learn this stuff first. And this stuff's not taught in schools. Most people's parents are not you know, well-versed enough in any of this stuff to teach it to their kids. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I, I strongly believe that a lot of the stuff we're talking about, if it was taught to the younger generations uh, in school, like balance, sticking, you know, just going with the flow, not having resistance, I think that the world would be in a much better place. I mean, if you think about the way that the system currently is, kids will will get bullied and then they'll go home and they'll eat bad and they'll get fat and then they'll get more bullied and then they'll go home and eat worse because they got more stressed and they get fatter and they get more bullied. And then one day they just don't know what to do and they go and shoot up a school. And now we're talking about gun laws. Yeah. And the gun laws is literally a bandaid. It's not a solution to the problem. A solution is teaching the foundation, teaching that if that life is about balance and if you get out of balance, just gently bring yourself back to it. You don't need to go crazy on the other end of the spectrum and then crazier on that end of the spectrum. You just gently bring yourself back to balance. I think that this is stuff that needs to be talked about more. Not the, the things that you need to do. It's the, the way you need to be. Yeah, it's weird how the most important things aren't taught in school. Well, who's going to teach them? There's not a lot of people that, that are talking about this stuff. This is ancient knowledge. This is stuff that's so clouded by modern-day news that it all has an agenda by modern day social media that takes precedence over this because there's money behind it. There's no money behind talking about this stuff. And this is the kind of stuff that I'm going to be talking about on my podcast that my, the whole preface of my book is about is because it needs to be talked about. That's why the devil has 98% of the people in this world under his control. It's, it's very true. Have you ever seen Midnight Gospel? No, I haven't. Yeah, Midnight Gospel, it's by... I can't remember who it is, but it's really interesting because it's like a podcast like this, but they take the voices and then they have the guests like do other like certain voices so that it's a cartoon pod. Like the, the, the audio is from the podcast and there's a cartoon and they make a cartoon revolving around the topics. And they did this one on life and death. And I think about it so much. The bird talks about how a lot of people think they're just a single, like um, just person among many, but really what it's like is a fishing wire. And every single node cross on those, those lines in the fishing wire is a person. So we're all connected through this fishing wire. And the, I think it's the Buddhist, the Buddhism teaches that it's not necessarily the node that's important. It's the connections between the nodes. And by, do, and by doing that, you release your ego and all that. And it's all about just the overall, like when you think of what to do, it's more about how can this better everybody rather than just benefit this node even though we're all connected a lot of people forget well, a lot of people don't even believe that we're connected right well how how could you when you're so addicted to dopamine hits on social media and looking at other people's fake lives and comparing yourself to them and victimizing yourself for not being given these things in life that's why so many people aren't able to focus on these things we're talking about 
Yeah, that those that data from the social dilemma, like right when social media hit, like 125% spike in like underage suicide. Yeah. Girls and all that. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. We're living in a in a weird time. And like I tell you, like that I'll win the devil book just seems like that fucker is in it right now. Like with the way they're like kind of like glamorizing unhealthiness. Like you just, obviously you see fast food, everything, but now they're like saying it's like it's they're kind of encouraging people to be unhealthy because when you're unhealthy, you're way easier to control. Right. Right. Because your mind is not active. You're not focused on who you need to be. You're you're more tame because you don't have the high energy levels. Yeah. I mean, you got to just bring it back to the basics. And and it's something that you need to experience. Like if you're listening to this podcast and you understand what we're talking about, you need to go and experience it. And that I guess this is a great conversation because it reminds me of why meditation is so important. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, of our minds have never been so fueled by so many external stimuli in the history of the universe before. And not just the external stimuli, but conflicting. Yeah. Conflicting external stimuli that's driven by motives. Our minds have never been uh, you know, conditioned to be in an environment like we're in today. Yeah. Our minds have never, it, in the history, not even close, technology is growing exponentially to a point where there's so much data on what makes you focused on what they want you to focus on that you really don't have control unless you get back to the basics, you know, unless you learn how to quiet your mind. Yeah. So quieting your mind and building that foundation is what will allow you to, do what you need to do. What do you think this is all bubbling to? Because like you said, never in history have people been like the way we are right now. And obviously like we found ways to like use it for our benefit, take advantage of it. Obviously no one would even be listening to this podcast if it wasn't for social media. But what do you think this is all going to? Because I, I feel like there's a tipping point coming soon. And that was really interesting. The social dilemma, they said like since the fifties or sixties, the processing power has has grown by over a trillion X. A trillion. Yeah. I don't really know what it's coming to. I mean, at this point, we basically all have universal knowledge because we all have access to Google. Um, I think in the next 10 years, there's going to be a, a chip that's in your brain that gives you access to that knowledge that you don't really have control over. I think that there's going to be a lot more problems over the next 10 years as far as more riots, more, more fighting, more disparity, you know, more polarization between different parties. And I also think simultaneously there's going to be a movement that brings awareness to these problems and brings solutions to people so that people could really experience what it's like to quiet your mind and have the peace that you need to be able to live a life that is fulfilling. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be that movement simultaneous with all the problems. Yeah, I see two routes. I think it's either going to be fusion, fusion with with the computers where we're going to have, because I was thinking about that with the Neuralink. Say they only release it to 10,000 people. Those 10,000 people are going to have a massive fucking advantage on everybody, on everybody. It's just like right when the cell phone came out. You have that cell phone, you can be anywhere and communicate. You can be on top of the news, especially like the stock traders. First time you could stock trade outside of like being in the NASDAQ and all that. Yeah. So it's either going to be that or we're going to come to like some sort of overall awakening. I just hope it's not war. I hope, I hope war doesn't, because like it seems like in history, 
war always like brings resets. down. Yeah, resets everything. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know that if, you know, the, the technology that's going to allow people to communicate through their minds, you know, Elon Musk is working on these types of things. If companies get their hands on it, they're going to be exponentially more productive than other companies. Imagine not having to start an email thread, go back and forth for four days to get your full communication back and forth. Imagine just understanding each other immediately without the need to go back and forth and explain and explain and explain. It's like, all right, we're understood. Mm. And then those people can connect with the other people. All right, we're understood. You can accomplish more in one day than another company can accomplish in a whole year where conversation with this guy well he doesn't fully get it so i need to convince this other person to get it so that he could talk to that person so that we could have a meeting and that could take months but with the technology that allegedly elon musk is developing those things will be understood immediately i mean we're going to make so much advancements as a civilization at the same time there's going to be more divide than ever yeah i mean what's that a recipe for i'm not sure i guess we'll see you know my theory is what's that you know how you're like there's only you had an explanation of why Elon Musk was able to start Tesla, Solar City, SpaceX all at the same time. What if he actually invented Neuralink like <laughs> 10 or 11 years ago and implanted it in his own brain? And that's why he acts so differently. That's why he acts so calculated. What if this guy has had Neuralink <laughs> for 10 years? And then that's like the marketing campaign when it releases. <laughs> He's like, I've had it for 12 years. You've seen what I do. Yeah, that would be, be a wild one. He said it's only going to be like 30,000 when they release it. Wow. But he said he wants to get it down to like a couple thousand. I haven't done enough research on it. I don't really have any background knowledge except for conceptually what it will be. You should check out his presentation with the pigs. Yeah? The only pig that wouldn't come out was the Neuralink one. Wow. But he said you'll be able to um, like playback, save, upload memories, um, like send text messages just by thinking. Yeah. And a really interesting one, he's like, with this, you can cure depression, you can cure addiction. And I'm wondering, it's like, I wonder if it's, if people are going to be able to hack it to be like, oh, I wonder what heroin feels like. And then, and then they feel it with no side effects. I think that could be an issue too. I mean, we, we could be living in an entirely artificial world right now. That's mm-hmm. not even real. That's just basically, ner- we could be sitting in a chair in a different dimension, hooked up to the most advanced VR in the world. And that's our life right now. Yeah. Like we have no idea, but that's what they're saying. Duncan Trussell is the guy who has a midnight gospel, if you ever heard of him. But he was saying that it's like uh, a lot of people get caught up in the fact of like improving their character here, improving their character, but they get so caught up in improving their character that they forgot that you have the goggles on. He's like, you're leveling up some like World of Warcraft character. Yeah. And you don't even take a second to even realize it. And it's, yeah. it's interesting. I wonder if like that is the case. Like, you pay X amount of money in it in this other dimension and then you put on these VR goggles and then you get born and then here we are. And this is what we signed up for. We just don't know that we signed up for it. Well, we could be in a simulation, in a simulation, in a simulation, in a simulation so far removed that like, you know, society could become so advanced and that's what it becomes. And then that's that next evol- evolution. I mean, it's so hard to comprehend, but we could literally be in an artificial simulation right now that's in already in another artificial simulation that's in another one so mm-hmm. far removed from reality that my i think we are but i don't think it's simulations i think it is the dimensions yeah and so that's why when we die i really think 
I, my, my theory going back to what I think like all life and everything is, I think we're like the devil, like, like when he said, I'm the negative ion in every atom, I'm the negative thought in every head. I have no space or time. That is where I live. I was like, holy fuck. So I think we're in the third, which I believe like fourth is like heaven, second is hell, and we're in this constant battle. And the only way to elevate to the fourth dimension is to have a, a light soul. And if, you, if, you, if you're filled with that negativity, you're going to sink after death. And I think when we get to the fourth dimension, it's going to be a whole nother challenge that we can't even comprehend. That's why we, when people try to figure out like, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Our, I really don't think our brains can even comprehend it right. until they ever until after death. But if you're a good person, I think you go to the fourth dimension and then that's a whole nother challenge. And I think the whole, the whole goal of life is to elevate through the dimensions with harder and harder challenges to prove yourself until you fuse with God himself. That's very interesting. That's just what I think. I, I love it. I love that. That I love that theory. Um, and I think that the only way to comprehend those types of thoughts, and I'm surprised that you don't meditate because that's what I think would bring you to have those types of understandings. Yeah, I need to. I really need to. And I have it on my, like I have a whole schedule back home that I'm going to implement right when I get back. It's a similar to yours. Wake up at 6.30, meditate for 20 minutes because Umar was saying the same thing every morning, meditate for 20 minutes. And then he said, like, if, if it wasn't for his research into psychology, he wouldn't have 80 to 90% of the success he has right now. He contributes that large of a portion of his success to psychological research. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that having a knowledge of psychology is one of the most important knowledges you can have. You know, I mean, I've, I've been to, uh, you know, a few different Tony Robbins events, UPW, Date with Destiny, um, and a pretty much all of what's taught there is psychology at a level that's really profound. And if you can understand how the human mind works, if you can understand why people feel the way they do, you're able to have conversations without sparking certain emotions that throw things off track. Or you could even understand how you feel and why you feel the way you do. I think that you have a tremendous advantage in life. Especially when it comes to business, because then you really understand how the customer acts. Right. And, and like trading stocks, of course, it's like you understand... The, the psychological uh, process yeah. of price action right. and all of that. Right. So, yeah, that's another thing I need to work on, psychological work. That's the two things I'm leaving here with for sure. Focus on meditation and psychological research. Bring it back to the basics. Bring it Simpl- back to the basics. Simplify life. Yeah, bring it back to being a kid. Yeah. Where it's like you didn't have, not having an agenda. Right. And not having expectations. Yeah, that's a good one. Because here's the thing, like, your expectations pretty much, you always, first of all, your mind typically expects the worst in most cases. Like it's like, it always thinks of the bad and it almost never comes true. And it's almost always better than what you would expect. So letting go of, and and sometimes you hold on to expectations. And when things don't go the way that you expect them to go, you start to get resistance and you stop, you stop going on the path that you're supposed to be on because you're, going on the path to get you to what you expect. That's exactly what he talks about in the book, War of Art. He goes, like a lot of people have a plan and they'll be so blinded by their own plan that they don't see this road that takes them there in like a year opposed to their 10-year plan. Yeah. And, and they get, and then that resistance builds up because they're like, this is the plan. I have to do this. I don't care about this. I don't care about this. Right. I don't care about this. You just got to surrender. Yeah. Comes down to. Like even when I was 18, like I, I had to like teach my friends this because they were all like, for example, um, like if I went to a party, like all my stupid ass friends, they're always like, you know, oh, I got to hook up with a girl, got to hook up with a girl. 
And that's their expectation. So if they don't get that, they're like, that party sucked. Right. They have a bad expectation. Every party or anything I, I went to, my only expectation was to have fun. Have fun. If that happens, fuck yeah. But if I have fun, if my expectation is have fun, all I'm thinking about is having fun. And at the end of the day, I still had fun and I met my expectations. Right. And that makes you more of an attractive person and that yeah. makes you more magnetic to others because you don't have the agenda like people don't realize that how big of a turnoff in all aspects having an agenda because people can feel that especially like really conscious people they can feel when you have an agenda oh, I was, yeah i was talking to you about someone who every time they speak to me had an agenda which pushed me very far away from potentially a, a pretty good friendship and connection but oh yeah and that people in our position i think we have people come to us with agendas more than most well, yeah, I, I've been very off the map. I don't really talk to many people in general mm-hmm. at this point. It's very, it's very rare that I'm, I'm talking to like too many new, you know, and if it's someone like, if you're like, hey, I recommend, you know, I, I want to connect you with this person, I'll definitely talk to them. But if it's just a random person that sends me an email or sends me a DM. Hey, can you tell me more about drop shipping? No matter what it is, like if it's a cold outreach, at this point, you know, there's an agenda. Mm-hmm. You know that there's an agenda and like, the odds of that relationship being, you know, beneficial are so slim that it's not really worth exploring. And it, the other thing is like the, the cost of taking your attention away from what you're doing to try something else is you're not just wasting your time. You're actually losing because you're not focused on the other things that are more important or the people that you care about more. Yeah. So that's kind of my take on it at this point in life. A hundred percent. On the way here, I listened to Jordan Peterson, like I said, and, he always says, like, um, you know, first you got to put a value on every hour of the day. And he's like, for most of you guys here, it's, I would say it's like about $50 an hour. I think ours, like, I personally rank mine around $1,000 an hour because that's what I, like, charge. I don't do consultation calls or really mentorship too much, but if I would, that's what I charge. And then he's like, okay, I'll use me, for example. Calculate how many hours you waste a day. So say I waste six hours a day. Even I can look at my screen time and see yeah, how much fucking right. time I waste on my phone. So say I have four hours of screen time a day. Just there alone, let's say I have another three hours I waste. Seven hours a day. That's $7,000 a day. $7,000 7, times 365. Two and a half million dollars a year. Damn, you're good at math. Yeah. Something Is that right? Yeah, right around that. Wow. Would you do math for well, a fucking living? No, I know what a million dollars a year is. It's like $2,700 a day, I think. Oh, that's right. That's right. Wow. All right. Well, I think we're about two hours deep into this wow. right now. This is going to be one of the longest ones, but I think this is going to be one of the best ones for sure. Hell yeah. We got, we got really deep, deeper than, than expected. Yeah. But uh, I love it. I mean, this was a great conversation. That's what happens on the Simplify podcast. Your dogs are going crazy to see you right now. Yeah. They absolutely are. We got to unleash, unleash the hounds. <laughs> well, is there anything you want the people to know before we close this up? Um, really just, you know, if you listen this far, uh, you're probably a special person. And yeah, if uh, you're listening this far, comment to our gang in the comments below. Yeah. And let's, let's hear your thoughts about the topics we talked about, about simplifying, about surrendering, about not having an agenda, about not having expectations. And let's, uh, let's hear your experiences when you finally implement that into your life. Mm-hmm. And what's your podcast going to be called when you launch it? The Modern Soul. The Modern Soul. I can see it now. Yeah. All righty. Well, Jared, thank you so much for this podcast. Yeah, bro. Signing off from Boca Raton. Oh.
Good work.